Hello and welcome to History of Westeros podcast. Uh, Six o'clock every Tuesday, we do this. If you are on Eastern Standard Time in the U.S., that is. Otherwise, uh, you're going to have to check your time zone to see what time it is. But we are trying to span the lives of several key characters this time, uh, some of whom have important parallels to current Song of Ice and Fire characters. As always, that's the way we do it. Last week was more of a... uh, dive into possible uh, plots and uh, theories about the way the Winds of Winter will play out, things like that. This time we're doing more of a character analysis uh, episode. And uh, with character analysis, we get historical foreshadowing. We get to see um, George's amazing ability to be subtle and to connect things in ways that are kind of right in front of us, but we don't necessarily notice them until we really uh, take a a close look. And this early in uh, the cycle of a new book, as as always, I like to point out that Fire and Blood is only a few months old, so we're still just figuring things out. And of course, these subtle things are some of the uh, some of the hardest to find. So um, with that in mind, we have more. Um, amazing guests joining us this week who are going to help us talk through a lot of these things and share their great thoughts and their great takes on uh, what we've learned so far. So let us welcome them. We have, first of all, uh, Eliana from uh, Girls Gone Canon and Maester Monthly and uh, lots of other fine projects. Why don't you please introduce yourself and tell everybody where to find you. Thanks, Aziz. Uh, yes, I'm Eliana, and as you said, you can find me on the Girls Gone Canon podcast where we're doing a weekly reread, but as opposed to doing it like in the chronological order, Chloe, whom you had on a few weeks ago, and I are doing it per character POV. So if you are here because you like character analysis, that's a thing that we do. Um, Also on the Maester Monthly podcast and on Twitter with a name that's difficult to spell. (laughs) That's true. It's not the easiest to say either, to be honest. Arithmetic. I don't even know if that's how it's said. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) nobody knows. There's still... A team of scientists working on that. <laughs> but it does flow nicely. A rhythmetric. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Eliana and, and I uh, have a lot in common with regards to our love for puns. Um, we do. Yes. So be prepared, folks. There's probably going to be some whoppers this time. And, of course, we have our other guest who is well-known in these parts and in the fandom in general. Her voice has been part of many of our episodes as a reader and has been a guest as well before. Welcome back to the show, Mikal. Hey everyone, I'm Mikal. I go by Ink as Rain on Twitter, and uh, I record about fantasy and A Song of Ice and Fire stuff with the Vassals of Kingsgrave. Uh, we actually just recorded our uh, first Fire and Blood episode. We got a little overly ambitious, and we're like, let's just talk about Fire and Blood. And then I think three hours later, uh, we were like, <laughs> oh God, Harry's just died. <laughs> <laughs> maybe we should stop so it will definitely I think not unlike uh, how these books are destined to go uh, we can't do it all in the amount of, of time that we had intended um, Yeah, and you can also Very find my true. writing about Game of Thrones and lots and lots of other nerdy stuff at hypable.com how are, actually, it's a, a fun little side question to start with, how is hypable uh, preparing for season 8 what do you, uh uh, trepidatiously. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah, it's it's a big thing just hurtling towards us all, isn't it? It really is. It's like I was actually like in a restaurant for no reason, and I was just like, oh my god, this is going to be the last season of Game of Thrones. That's huge! <laughs> and I was like, you didn't yeah. realize this? <laughs> the rest of the time. It's heavy. Yeah, it's obvious. 
It's very heavy. I mean, we got the spinoff coming, but it's still like, that's just so different. You know, it's a whole nother thing. This mm-hmm. is just its own huge uh, kind of unique um, thing for TV. I mean, we, we, we there's all these other fandoms that are so big, but they're mostly movie fandoms like Marvel and Harry Potter. And I mean, they're book also, but uh, yeah. Um, TV for a TV show. It's just, you know, getting to do it every week. Anyway, but we'll cover the TV show when it comes around. We're not here to talk the TV show today. Is, even though it's coming up pretty soon. We do have a couple of announcements, and one of those relates indirectly to the TV show. If you come to Ice and Fire Con this year, you will get to watch an episode of Game of Thrones at the con uh, with us and all the other people who are there because Ice and Fire Con takes place during Season 8, so that's pretty cool. You can use the code HISTORY to get $5 off your ticket purchase, and we hope to see you there. We're going to be on some panels. Uh, Eliana is going to be there as well, and... Uh, She'll be on some panels too, I guess. I don't know that. And, uh, I actually don't know. You're not, you're not sure? I haven't sure? signed up okay, for any. You might be on some panels. Okay. Well, maybe. You'll be there. So <laughs> maybe you're not be, be there. Paneling, I'll be like at the be bar. It'll be great. <laughs> yeah, it'll be great. It's super fun. So, um, and along the same lines, another con coming up several months later in July is Con of Thrones. We are also going to be there, also paneling. And the same discount code applies, HISTORY, if I get you $5 off your ticket purchase. They just announced that they're getting Nikolai Coster-Waldo, which is pretty cool. Um, So that'll be fun. We're looking forward to meeting him. It was good. I was on mute. I just made a really (laughs) undignified sound. (laughs) (laughs) So um, we, if you are interested in going to either of those cons and aren't sure which one fits you better, a great place to discuss that is in our Facebook group. We have a lot of people who have been to both and who live in different parts of the country. There's a lot of factors, the timing, the money, the part of the country, who's going to be there, all that. So our Facebook group, historyofwesteros.com slash, uh, historyofwesteros.com, no, facebook.com slash historyofwesteros is the Facebook group. And there's um, a lot of great discussions in there um, uh, along lines of that, as well as theories and, and uh, you know, the usual stuff people talk about in the Game of Thrones Facebook group, um, theories and, and the upcoming season and Fire and Blood and all that good stuff. So uh, let us talk about a few other things. We have, um, if you want to be notified on these uh, live streams, YouTube, within the last year, changed a few things about how they're notification system works. There's a little bell button by the subscribe button. It should be in the bottom right there if you're looking at the video screen. Click on that and you get um, better notifications for when these things start. But they're always Tuesday at 6 Eastern Standard, so that should help. Speaking of, next week we're going to do things a little different. We've been covering Fire and Blood you know, every week, every Tuesday, and we're going to still be doing that. But next week, rather than picking a specific topic and rather than having guests, we're going to do an open Q&A. It doesn't have to be Fire and Blood related. We assume most questions will be, but you can ask any question and we'll handle it. So that'll be fun. We get to take a short break from deep diving into the material and see what other people are interested in and uh, give ourselves a chance to work a little bit more on some other projects as well. Uh, because we're, we've got a lot uh, up in the air right now. We're working on the Dance of the Dragons thing with uh, Radio Westeros. We're, working, we're doing all these live streams and we are working on... Blood Raven 3. Blood Raven 3 won the patrons vote for next episode, and it's already underway. I've been put in, uh, work, wrote several pages this week, actually, and a lot of the work had already been done. So I don't know how long it will take. As usual, I get in trouble when I try to predict um, when I'm going to be done with an episode. So I'm not going to do that. It'll be done when it's done, and I will, you know that I'll be working hard on it uh, until, it's, until that happens. All right. So that's enough of the announcements. We got a couple of questions from... Uh, patrons and YouTube commenters. Uh, most of the questions that were asked are stuff that we're going to either cover throughout the episode or 
um, in a different episode because they maybe don't quite apply. But there's a couple that mm, either relate to last episode and uh, also just I wanted th these particular guests to weigh in on them as well. So let's start with those questions and then we'll get into our main topic, which is, as we've entitled, Queens and Lions and Dragons. And I'll give a more thorough explanation of what that uh, title means once we get there. Starting with Bullweir the, Bullweir the Purple, whose name apparently is difficult for me to say. <laughs> I've long been trying to get my head around just how much experimentation had to have been going on to make so many half-human species out there. I've also been thinking a lot about how the mysterious Northeast could have contributed, there being, quote, real shapeshifters there, and also the squisher-like people. But mostly I've thought about warging. How did that start? Right? Um... This is me now. Uh, this is a good question. Like, how did, where did, are these all these different uh, cultures that have some sort of connection to skin changing or some sort of other magic and how that all kind of combine into what we have now? And uh, the question continues in ElfQuest, the, the children of the forest like elves have a telepathic like bond to their wolves because of a half shapeshifter elf, half wolf ancestor. So, in other words, some long distant ancestor sort of bonded and all the elves from then had this ability, which is, you can kind of see where that's similar to all the, maybe the Starks and maybe some other Northerners picking up on Northern blood and having skin-changing ability. And likewise, the Valyrians all inheriting these dragony traits one way or the other. And uh, yeah, so that's interesting. Let's, let's, let's let um, Eliana and Mikhail weigh in on that. Eliana, do you have any takes on uh, ancient skin-changer bloodlines or anything like that or uh, something along these lines? Um, I got distracted by thinking about the squishers and the half-human species. I was like, they don't necessarily need to be half-human. Like, if you go back to a piece of mythology called the Super Mario Brothers live-action movie, um, <laughs> they have an entire separate, like, race of people, but not people, that are, you know, like the the, the dinosaur-esque uh, humanoid species, and they're not humans. So that's, that's one <laughs> possibility I'm going to just throw out there. But as for uh, the skin changing, yeah, it seems similar. I'm not familiar with ElfQuest, but like that, that idea that it's something that was, I don't know, passed down through mating with the children of the forest, which is like really weird, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, how do they do that? Like, right, we, that's, that's one thing we talked about in our Gagasas videos. Like, do they actually mate or is it some sort of magical splicing? Like the others, when they turn a baby into one of them, like that's not mating, even though they say they sired half-human children. So I'm thinking that, like what you said, the, the logistics is not pleasant to consider anyway, and probably doesn't work out. <laughs> Nicole, what do you think? Um, I think, well, I, I mean, I actually think wargs are just magical. Like that's, yeah. that's it. Um, who knows? Maybe there was some interesting sex going on way back in the day. It's cold <laughs> in the north. Who knows? But like, for the most part, I think that was just magic. Um, as for, but but I'm like very much on the like, like yes, absolutely, ancient Targaryens did genetic weirdness and possibly inseminated women with dragon stuff and all that wonderfulness. Um, I just think, you know, I, they're called the blood of the dragon. <laughs> like, they're obviously technically dragons to some extent. So that's, that's like my favorite thing because it's so weird. Yeah, it is pretty weird. That's for sure. <laughs> There's no, whether we have an answer or not, we can definitely declare it weird. <laughs> but it's, it's so George, right? Because it's so like, I'm just going to throw this like thing that seems like a sci-fi concept that couldn't possibly be in a fantasy novel 
into this like crazy ancient fantasy novel where like nobody knows what genetics are. They just know that babies happen when you do things and they yeah. have magic. So I, I remember your reaction to uh, see McCall leaves us little uh, little audio clips uh, when she's doing voices for us. So we get to be amused when we're editing. And uh, she we had a quote for from Tough Voyaging. Speaking of sci-fi, we had a quote from the Tough Voyaging series in our Gagasis episode because it does talk about gene splicing and all this stuff. And when you saw that, you were like, ooh, Tough Voyaging. And you, <laughs> you realized you were doing the voice of like a seven foot tall like yeah. low voiced bald guy <laughs> who's kind of like a like a like a combined uh, like a version of dunk but varus size and varus but dunk sized right <laughs> with a with a voice like morgan freeman or something like that but you pulled it off <laughs> <laughs> yeah me and morgan we actually go for a lot of the same parts <laughs> <laughs> of course of course <laughs> Uh, super chat from Marvin Martin. Why didn't Raina put eggs in her twins' cribs, and why didn't Jaharis and Alisan do the same with their horde of kids? By the way, Eliana, Valentine's Day is upon us. Winky emoji, heart eyes emoji. I guess that's some sort of in-joke there between you guys. I don't know. <laughs> what, is, is there a... No? Okay. She's not quite sure. Anyway, uh, about the eggs, yeah, it's interesting because Raina is the one who started the tradition of putting eggs in cribs, but we don't hear about her doing that for her kids. Which is strange. And we're going to get into her relationship with her kids a little bit later because we're going to tackle Raina kind of all as one topic. So that is, a, that is something we plan on talking about, so stay tuned for that. But it's a good question, a good catch that she seemed to really like her siblings. And she even encouraged Araya to get a dragon, but she didn't put ha eggs in their cradle. So, interesting, interesting. Question from Taco Tom Pike, Bastard of Krakens. He, had been, he says, I've been asking around about the thin black dog that comes up and sniffs Joff as Cersei is holding his corpse. This is so strange. Why was this dog even in the wedding festivities? It just seems to me that George is sneaking something in. I know the black dog is symbolic of death or evil or an evil omen. What do you think? Is that all? Is George connecting this to something else? Well, um, first of all, that's a really well-timed question, even though it does, maybe doesn't seem super related to this because we even have uh, art of that particular scene coming up later in this episode. Not the dog, but Joff uh, and Cersei. Because Cersei is a wonderful parallel to Reyna. This is a character study episode, and Reyna has a ton of things in common with Cersei, and we're going to have a lot of fun with that today. But as far as the black dog here, um, yeah, why is the dog even in the wedding festivities? Well, it's outside at King's Landing. Yeah, who can keep these dogs and cats? They just kind of go where they will. Um, but as far as the symbology, I don't honestly don't have an answer beyond the symbol of death. But uh, maybe maybe our guests have something. McCall, do you have any any take on that? Uh, no, not really. I, I don't want to steal Eliana's brilliant answer, so <laughs> I'm going to let her say that. Okay, yeah, Eliana has a has a nice one here. Go ahead. Eliana. One of these days, I'm going to give a real <laughs> answer to something. But I was just I wrote in the outline. I was like, "Is it serious black?" Because I don't remember this happening at all. But that's my answer. It's it's pretty subtle, I guess, right? Like a, just an animal coming up, and you know, like why would that necessarily? It's so such a big thing is happening. Joffrey's just died. The the, the purple wedding is blowing up. A, a dog sniffing the corpse doesn't really stand out, I guess, unless you're. Well, unless you're an obsessed Westorian like most of us are. So I guess uh, it does make sense to look at that <laughs> very closely. But I, uh, but I guess we don't have a great answer. Um, so sorry about that. I uh, wish, uh, wish we had some more insight for that one. But maybe someone else does. Um, we'll, we'll keep an eye out for good comments. Okay, so let's start with uh, the mother of dragons and stags, I'm calling her. I think she has a claim to 
that title as much as Daenerys. Not not literally so. Daenerys kind of, well, did she literally birth dragons? I don't know. That's just kind of getting into the weeds. But Alyssa didn't have actual dragon babies. She had lots of Targaryens, though. She was really active in politics and war and intrigue. And there's that old cliche phrase behind every successful man is, is a woman. Uh, well, in Alyssa's case, there was two successful men, but she really wasn't behind them. Uh, in a sense, she kind of was, but she also did a lot on her own. She was regent, so that's that's not in, that's not in behind the scenes at all. Regent is right out in the front, and she was the first regent ever for the Iron Throne, unless you count Visenya when Maegor was in a coma, which I don't really count that. That's that's uh, kind of by default. Um, and uh, I see Eliana has a good note here about the Valerians, and that is. Uh, Alyssa's heritage, and of course they were already close together, so Eliana, yeah, go ahead, weigh in. Oh yeah, so I just thought it was interesting that Alyssa Valerian is, I think, one of the first times that we hear this this alliance through marriage between House Targaryen and House Valerian, and of course, as we know, House Valerian was already a trusted vassal of House Targaryen coming over with them, like, even a little before the Doom and following their lord to Dragonstone, but like Alyssa marrying into House Targaryen signals the rise, in my opinion, of the golden age of House Valerian, which like I think really peaks with Corlys Valerian and then a lot of that trade and stuff, which I mean, trade and merchant stuff is going to play a role obviously in the Winds of Winter, but House Valerian also sees its power dwindle a little after the dance towards the end of this book, so interesting house. Yeah, I agree. They're, um, they're pretty cool. They got a big history. And I think it's a great point you said about their their bloodlines because they're so close to the Targaryens. It's kind of like they're the they're, they're like the second line of 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 dragon blood almost. When they don't have a a brother or sister to marry, they're like, hey, well, let's check with the Valerians, see what they got. They're the understudy Targaryens. <laughs> that's a good that's a good way to put it. Yeah. And as for Alyssa herself, she's a perfect example of something that comes up a lot in Song of Ice and Fire as much in the history stories as it does in the main series, which is you have a character who, if you zoom in on their story, it's really cool. But it's really hard to zoom in on because it's scattered throughout the novel or the history book or what have you. And so this is one of the things that I think is really fun when we get to take all these details about one character, put them together, and you get this whole new story. Like we've we've done this with so many other characters, like in our Blackfire series, Bittersteel and Bloodraven and all these guys. There are so many great characters that way. And in Fire and Blood, there's um a lot more of them, and there's a more of more attention paid to some of these female characters, which is great, because that's a, just a you know, not that there weren't some before, but having more of them is great because these are we get different kind of stories out of it. And uh, so her life, Alyssa, is interspersed with Aenys and Magor and Visenya. And they're constantly stealing the spotlight because they're bigger political actors for the most part. And they're riding dragons and killing people. And yeah, they're, she's just not as fancy, but she's, you know, almost as important. And her story is just as interesting, I think. So I'll, I'm going to rattle off just some basic details and then we'll start discussing uh, her life. She's a daughter of Aethon Valerian, who is the Lord of the Tides, Master of Ships slash Lord Admiral. And he's the great granddad to the sea snake. Um, on to Eliana's point about this, the golden age of of the Valerians. I think that's a very accurate way to to look at it. And this would be sort of as the start of that. This you could see kind of the the way it went from there to to kind of trace the lineage down to the sea snake from there on. She marries Aenys at uh, age fifteen. He was also age fifteen, and this was in the year twenty two. 
And this leads to a whole bunch of firsts, which I think is cool. Like, as far as trivia, Alyssa Villarian is, is uh, full of great trivia. Um, so let's, let me get some, uh, some takes from my guests on some of these firsts after I rattle them off here. She's the first ever princess because Visenya and Rhaenys were technically straight to queen. <laughs> they were conquest, they're queens. No princess time. She was the first ever to marry a Targaryen post-conquest, whether a Targaryen or not, because... Visenya and Aegon and Rhaenys were all married before the conquest. And then you have the first ever Targaryen royal wedding. Uh, of course, that makes sense, given it's the first uh, marriage post-conquest. And again, Aegon and his sisters were already married. And she has the first royal grandchild, which is Rhaena, who also a big topic this episode. And Rhaena was named for Rhaenys. And it said that Aegon wept, which is uh, probably in part to the reference to Rhaenys. And of course, we also get our first succession question, because Rhaena's birth... Creates a little bit of uh, friction there between who's next. Aenys is definitely first, but is Rhaena next or is it Magor? So, um, Eliana, let's start with you. What do you think about those firsts and uh, about uh, Alyssa in general, early life? Um, Well, we don't know much about Alyssa's early life, but like, yeah, it's interesting that she's so many of these firsts, especially because she's coming from outside of the family like I'm just imagining you know that feeling of you're like meeting your partner's family and it's super nerve-wracking only like your partner and no one in their family has ever had actually like had to deal with this because they've all like grown up with each other and are literally family and it's she had a lot on her shoulders <laughs> that's for sure she doesn't seem weak either I'm glad I'm glad that we get kind of a a sense of her character or not like you said it's not really well fleshed out but there's a couple of things that show us that she's kind of brave she like tweaks Megor's nose at one point she's gonna kind of teases him taunts him McCall what do you think about uh, Alyssa so far I mean I I it's very interesting to me how she's kind of positioned as this you know someone who is swept up in what the Targaryens like to think of as like their inevitability as rulers, like there's a line that you know nothing less than royalty would do for her, and it's like, well, what would you intend to do before they did all this? Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think she is uh, also an interesting test case for people marrying into this this family from outside. You know, when they when we are combining like kind of all of the like super Targaryen factors, right? Like the dragons and the craziness and the incest and the polygamy. Like, all of it comes together for her, and she just kind of, like, gets thrust into this as comparatively an outsider. And uh, she's, you know, she's such a strong person. Like, all of the women that we're going to talk about today are such strong people. But it really, you know, you just think of what she went through, and it's, it's like, sad to think of her youth a little bit. Yeah, it really is. Um, and then, and it's, it's not going to get less sad as we go through this episode because no, everything just gets sadder. Raina's <laughs> life is even worse. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah. So I see someone comment. Nine Nichols says that <clears throat> Alyssa Villarian wasn't the first Tar Villarian bride. That's correct. She was the first Villarian to marry into the Targaryen royal family, but not the first to marry into the Targaryen family. Of course, there were brides that we're not aware of prior to. Um, Aegon and Rainy, Rainy, I keep saying Rainy, combining Rainy's and Raina into one word. Rainy's and Visenya's mother was Valena Valerian, who obviously came from that family as well. We're not entirely sure what the connection between Alyssa and Valena was. We're not sure that that's their, they're, they're not necessarily directly related. Good chance they're at least cousins, though. And uh, 
probably several before that that we just don't have record of. And of course, uh, one or two after. So um, she wasn't, she was at least following a tradition that had been in existence before, but it was different now because the Targaryens were royals and, and ruling all of Westeros than uh, before where they were just fancy old families living in a new new country. <laughs> Uh, we have a super chat from B1 Mary. All aboard. Choo-choo. Right on. Here we go. <laughs> Forward. A full steam ahead. Okay, so some other uh, cool factors about her early life. We have um, the marriage. The first marriage uh, suggestion comes up immediately when Reyna is born because of that succession issue. And wisely, they try to take care of it right away. But there's this whole problem of their rules are not the faith's rules. We discussed the issue of Targaryen exceptionalism a few weeks ago. So we know how that eventually went. But at this time, we have to remember, it was not established yet. And the idea, once it was put forward by Visenya, which was, hey, let's just marry Magor to Reyna. No problem. That'll be, that solves the succession issue. Well, Alyssa's like, no. And Aenys is like, no. And obviously the faith is like, hell no. And so no one ever really solves this issue. In fact, it comes up later. As we know, Reyna does eventually marry Magor, um, not exactly by choice. But it temporarily is resolved because Aegon is born. And just, there's a boy born and they say, oh, well, we'll just marry Aegon to Reyna. And that takes care of that. Doesn't solve the problem for, from Visenya's side, but at least it takes care of the problem as far as, it, uh, as, far as the realm goes. So... I see some, uh, we have some good takes from both our guests in this section, so let me turn it over to them. Uh, Eliana, you go first this time. Uh, tell us about this, uh, this this marriage stuff and exceptionalism and succession. Yeah, I think that, um, you know, this was just an interesting political move for many reasons, because not only is it like, no, we're not going to marry our baby girl to that crazy-ass uncle. Uh, he was crazy, <laughs> all right? And so there's obviously a self-preservation aspect to it, because if they're marrying Reyna to Aegon, it's obviously not solely for religious reasons, that or like to appeal to the faith that they have refused that marriage. So it becomes a political move because it then clarifies Aegon and Alyssa's intent for succession because there were, of course, questions about whether Reyna or Magor or Aegon were going to be the heir. But obviously the birth of Aegon clarifies like, well, we have a male child from this male line and that bumps Magor a little bit. But by binding the two siblings, it does what, you know, Jaehaerys was hoping to do by wedding his eldest daughter Daenerys and Aemon as a way to deal with Alicene's questions. But of course it doubles down and like bolsters this of like the throne passing through them and not crazy ass Magor. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, good take. McCall, what do you think? Yeah, this drives me crazy because it like really hammers home how dumb this, I mean, the, the whole idea of like depending on any gender for succession really is because it's like they're not, now they're like, okay, so we can't, because we had a girl, we can't automatically say, okay, it's automatically the firstborn son. Uh, but then, and then they're like, oh, well, maybe we'll let the girl be, the, be the queen. <laughs> we'll see what happens. And then Aegon comes along and they're like, oh, never mind. They could just get married. And like, you can't rely on having to, like having a daughter and a son and a son and a daughter. Like that's, that's just as dumb as relying on having a son first. And if they had like, even at least just been like Reyna's, Reyna's the queen or even said like Magor is, will carry on like over her 
literally so many wars could have been stopped <laughs> in the future. And That's a good like, point, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's relevant even now, right, with Danny and, and Aegon, you know, like it, it to this day in the story, it, it's, a, it's a relevant concept and it's like not just sexism, it's also just like idiocy and like jockeying for power. Yes, so true. I, that's a great point about how monarchy already has that flaw of, well, if there's not the, the right person born, you're screwed or in the right order. Yeah, you're right. The Targaryens just complicate that by saying we have to have a boy and a girl and they have to be somewhat close in age and they blah, 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 blah. And then what if they don't get along? And then, yeah, what if they're like Daella and Vagon or one of those other matches that just went went very poorly? At least they had the sense to not force it. But some of these cases, they just, you know, they this this betrothal was made when Reyna was, what, like three and Aegon was just born. So there's no way they could know whether they would get along. So that's just, yeah, you're right. They're, they're really gambling on a lot with, with that. Super chat from the prince that wasn't promised for the realm. Thank you, sir. Very, we very appreciated. Um, if you have any questions, be always feel free to attach them to your super chats, but no uh, need to do that if you just want to send a message. Uh, one music anecdote about uh, that I mentioned briefly here a second ago that shows some of Alyssa's character is the way she talks to Magor, and that in, in fact would speak very much to why she wouldn't want uh, her kids or any of her kids to marry Magor because she grew up with him and knows that he's terrible. Um, the the example was she uh, teased Magor about not having a dragon. She said she suggested he was scared. Now. There's basically no chance that Alyssa actually thought Magor was afraid of these little hatchlings. Um, for one thing, they're in their late 20s, uh, or at least mid-20s, which means they're not teenagers. That's important because they're not just like teenagers kind of like, you know, throwing shade at each other. So, uh, and the, but the reason she, there's no way he's afraid of hatchlings is because this is, by this point, he had already gone into battle several times and fought pirates and went hunting a guy named the Giant of the Trident and killed him. So <laughs> he's clearly not afraid of a hatchling, I don't think. So uh, I think she was trolling him. Yeah, I, I tend to think that she is, A, being a troll, but B, also like, who, like, how's that going to land, you know, like, for example, saying that to Aenys, had he not had a dragon, like, all right, maybe <laughs> there's some truth in it, but like, you're bringing Magor down to that down. There's BS, but but to that level, uh, when when you suggest such a thing, and um, pretty brave of her to do that, since he's a total crazy person. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, I think that's important to note. Yeah, she's just not afraid to talk to him like that. What do you think, Eliana? Yes, she's trolling him. He deserved it, and I am here for it. That's all I have to say about that. <laughs> Yeah, it's like our first clue that she's pretty cool. Like, hey, uh, let's pay attention to this girl. She stepped up to Magor. I like that. By the way, um, we haven't commented on Eliana's very cool chalkboard background, but did you did you draw that yourself? Yeah, I was like, uh, I need to rearrange things because welcome to my kitchen, everyone. This is my kitchen where <laughs> I record and do things. And I decided we could have um, be thematic today. Yeah, look at that. She drew a, th a fire, uh, a three-headed dragon in chalk. It looks very nice. And then wrote fire and blood. Of course, I'm saying this for the uh, listeners who are not able to see it. <laughs> this, this scene of um, Alyssa taunting Magor gave me Victorian vibes because we're, we hear that Victorian doesn't like 
laughter. He because he can't he doesn't understand it. He doesn't know if it's at him or not. He's never in on the joke. I think of Michael Scott in the office saying, "I love inside jokes. I'm gonna be in. I'm gonna be in on one one day." <laughs> it's like, yeah, you no, know, you won't be Victorian because you just have no sense of humor. So I kind of I think of Megor kind of similar like that. And but there's also some, but there's probably more to it than that. It's probably not just like in Euron and Aaron's case, they just like picking on someone weaker than them. But in Alyssa's case, I don't think she really saw Megor as weaker than her. She just probably just didn't like him. Like, just imagine growing up with that guy. Like, it's easy to to see that. Like, yeah, like, uh, that's not a stretch at all. Who would want to live with that dude? And given things that come up later, it's only going to get worse. An interesting question I have, though, it's harder to tell. And I wonder what, um, wonder what our guests think of this, too, is wonder how Alyssa got along with Visenya. And they're kind of in a similar sort of spot. Like, Rhaenys is long dead, so she's not this other power, uh, per, you know, powerful person hanging out. But Alyssa's the queen, and Visenya was the former queen and part of the Conqueror's regime. And she has Vagar, and she's just got all this political clout. But we're not really told how they interacted, so we're kind of forced to guess, um, other than a couple interactions they have later. Do y'all have any takes on this? Uh, Eliana, start with you this time. Yeah, I think, so, since we're be going to talk about Cersei a lot in the stream, it yeah. makes me think that maybe it would have been, like, Marjorie and Cersei's relationship, right? Where Visenya obviously is playing the Cersei role here and Alyssa the Marjorie role. But also, I mean, I don't necessarily know how it started out, but I can say for sure that it didn't end well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Because uh, Visenya took her as hostage, which is, like, not how you endear yourself to anyone. <laughs> um, yes, very true. So, uh, Mikal, what do you think? I think that that was probably terrifying. <laughs> um, yeah. I, I love Visenya. She's super cool, but um, I think she's definitely best admired from a distance. And uh, <laughs> as the only, as you know, you're supposed to have two mothers-in-law, which sucks to begin with. And then like, oh, well, the only one left is the scary one. So, you know. <laughs> Yeah, she only wields blood magic as a huge dragon, as, you know, a sword fighter. And uh, yeah, what's what's to be scared of? Yeah. <laughs> she definitely doesn't favor her own son, who's a crazy person. It's yeah. all good. Yeah, that's for sure. Uh, so in 33, the year 33, Alyssa and Aenys go on a royal progress, kind of taking Aegon's place. Aegon the Conqueror had been doing all these progresses, but as he got older, he decided it would be wiser for his his heir to do it. And at one point, they go to Storm's End uh, during this progress, which I think is interesting because Alyssa would have met Rogar at that point. You wonder what she would have thought of him then. Eventually, eventually she marries him. And we can hold our our main thoughts on Rogar because obviously there's, there's a lot of bad things to say about Rogar. But that at this point, he probably wasn't so bad yet. I wonder if Alyssa would later regret liking him here. It, presumably, she did, had you know some positive thoughts about him at this point when he was only you know, 20. Uh, but then it went bad. You have to wonder how how their relationship went early on um, and how that would have connected to to them coming together later. I see uh, McCall had the two thumbs down for Rogar. I totally agree. Uh, give us some early thoughts on uh, Rogar and Alyssa here um, while, while we're at it. Uh, Michal. I mean, I'm sure he was very charming. Um, he seems like the type of person who can put on a good show. Um, Luckily, he obviously wasn't interested in her at that point, at least not deeply, because then he would have thrown a tantrum. 
Um, <laughs> and, you know, Rogar has to get what Rogar wants. So. That's true. I'm not a fan of that guy. No, I don't think many people are. Yeah. <laughs> Heliana probably is going to agree that he's not a good dude. He's he's not a great dude. He sucks. <laughs> so, uh, he's, he's like he's interesting, all right? Like he, the, George tries to play him off as like valiant because of his I don't know prowess and fighting, but I'm like, but he's like mean yeah. anyway. But I, they must have gotten along well enough here at the beginning for him to have come to her aid later so yeah yeah i agree there has to be that's why that's kind of what i was getting at. there has to be a little something positive it had to at least had to be something good to start with or it would got or it would have been probably worse <laughs> during later or and or uh there would have been some sort of rumbling about it because Alyssa was as we saw here as we are seeing here rather she's she's not meek she's and she has some power and she's willing to speak out so if she didn't want to marry rogar we probably would have heard about it uh, but anyway, we're a little ahead of ourselves with that because this marriage comes quite a bit later. And uh, let's see, she starts having lots of kids. That's one of the reasons I want to say she's a mother of dragons and stags because she also has Rogar's kids later. But uh, let's go through this real quick. Age 20, or a, a, a year after getting married, she has Reyna. Then she has Aegon uh, three years after that. Then Viserys three years after that. Five years after that, Jaehaerys. Two years after that, Elisand. And then one year after that, Aeneas is crowned. So she has five kids before they take the throne. And then another child two years later, Vaela, but Vaela died in the cradle. She's going to end up having a total of eight children. And uh, unlike Alisan, she didn't outlive most of them, which is, which is nice. She only, uh, only outlived three of them, which sounds awful. She, three of her kids died, and that's like, hey, that's not so bad. It sounds so terrible, but really, that's not so bad given the standards. So, uh, yeah, harsh, but, but true. Um, that's just a, a weird question in general. Just, like, thinking about how women in this era just would have to be expected to, yeah, one, my, some of my sons are probably going to die in war someday. Whereas modern families face that far less, not in certain some places, that's still a, a very real fear, but a lot less common. Um, let's get y'all's takes on just what that has to be like and how difficult that would be and how people might deal with that in general. Uh, Eliana, let's start with you. I, th I want to get into it a little more later, but it seems like, I don't know, I don't know that it's ever easy. And I like that this is explored much more through Jahari's and Alisan's uh, storyline like I think people take it for granted like they think that oh because there's a high infant mortality rate it would hurt less but I don't think it hurts any less and yeah that whole idea is explored very much in their storyline yeah what do you think McCall oh yeah I think the maesters think it hurts less um, there's a line <laughs> when one of Alison's daughters dies or sons dies it's like as usual the queen took the loss of the child hard it's like no shit <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I think that this is also, again, part of the themes that are still extremely resonant, like the, the loss of children drives everything that Cat, not everything, a lot of things that Catelyn and Cersei do. Um, it's a threat that is wagered against most of the characters, honestly, um, including, you know, um, um, Elia. You know, down and Dorn is like, no more of this, please. And everybody's like, ha, ah, shut up. Um, <laughs> and Ned. Yeah. 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 Such a huge driving factor for Ned and like the early storyline in A Game of Thrones. Mm -hmm. 
And and the the reality of dying in childbirth aside, there is a lot of childbirth death in fire fire and blood. And it's addressed in some ways, but just rather than addressing it as a realistic thing or not, I just want to point out in, in terms of this this topic of the emotional difficulty. Imagine that too. Not only are you like, oh, I'm going to lose half my kids probably during my lifetime because that's just how it is. And then you add on to that, oh, I might die because I just got pregnant, right? Like that's just good Lord. <laughs> that's just the, the, the level of toughness you have to have just to exist in this uh, type of world is just so much higher. And, uh, and people like Rogar just don't seem to understand it, right? Later that comes up pretty big. They just, they don't know how to contextualize that. And, uh, but, Speaking back to something we mentioned a minute before, I want to mention, even though Cersei and Reyna seems to be a stronger parallel, Alyssa meeting Rogar early on gives me some Cersei-Robert vibes. When Cersei saw Robert from afar, she's like, oh yeah, everybody wanted him when he was 18 and nobody knew better. He was just this tall, hot guy that was charismatic and badass and, you know, Lord of Storm's End. Like, yeah, who wouldn't want him? And I'm kind of guessing Rogar may have had some of those vibes because a lot of Rogar sounds like Robert before people realized he was, well what he was. <laughs> okay, I, I do have to note though, George is not very creative when it comes to Baratheon men. Like, across <laughs> yeah, the history, true. it's kind of like, oh, look, it's Robert. Oh, look, it's Robert. Oh, look, it's Robert. That's very this true. This one had an axe instead of a hammer. <laughs> Whoa. Good job, George. <laughs> is the dichotomy between Aenys and Rhaegar, uh, not Rhaegar, Aenys and Ro Rogar slash, some people say Roger, and I was like, whoa, mind blown, it could be Roger. Anyways, Aenys and Rogar supposed to be like that between Rhaegar and Robert. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Um, here's another question. Oh, here we go. It's This one's directed at Ileana. Super chat from Thomas Pappas. Question for Ileana. And perhaps the greatest acquisition in the A Song of Ice and Fire content world, A Song of Ice and Fire subreddit, was able to sign... History of Westeros mod all-star Laura Brondos. Can we expect to hear her on Maester Monthly? Well, I think that you can ask Laura in the chat yourself. I believe she's in there. Oh. And <laughs> um, that's honestly up to her. Cool. Well, yeah, we do. Uh, Laura, Shout out to Laura. She is one of our mods in our Facebook group, and she does a great job. And uh, also, we've gotten to meet her in person. So, lovely person as well. Okay. Well, we have... Uh, it's that time. Acre Frey has arrived with his challenge. I was letting people off easy last week. I was I was told that it's too easy if I let people only say it once. So we're gonna have to go three times. So uh, Nicole, you get to start as as resident history of Westeros voiceover person. Uh, you get right. to start. You'd say Irish wristwatch thrice. Okay. We'll go thrice. Uh, <laughs> Irish wristwatch. Irish wristwatch. <laughs> Irish wristwatch. Irish wrist. <laughs> She, she didn't make any mistakes, but she couldn't help but, but laugh and switch to British. So that's still... Everything's better in British. <laughs> yes. Okay, Eliana, now you are on the spot. Damn, dude, I thought I only had to like do this once and it was hazing, but apparently this is a thing every time just, now. Just right, comes right. up. I know you've had to do it before, but now you've yeah, had yeah. practice, so... <laughs> <laughs> okay. Irish fish wash! Irish fish wash! <laughs> I'm gonna just lead in. Uh, you, you sounded like someone who's like you go to a, pl a place, an, uh, an Irish venue where the proprietor will wash your wrist for you. Irish wrist wash. <laughs> Sounds like some good ass service. Yeah, they use Irish. That's soap. What's the Irish Spring? What is that stuff called? <laughs> oh, I do like the scent of the Irish Spring soap. Actually, it's very uh, light and fresh. That's right. So now imagine your wrist smelling that way all the time. I just love the way the Irish smell. 
<laughs> okay, so we have uh, continuing with the uh, early part of, of Anis's coronation, where everything just blows up, and I really wonder, because we don't hear about it, how much Alyssa had to do with any of this, whether she was like, husband, do not do this, this is stupid, or whether it was like a constant stream of him wanting to do something stupid and her being unable to stop him, or was she just... Right there with him, like, yeah, let's do this. And then, like, both of them together are like, why, are, why does everybody hate us? Or maybe she's even the one that's making these bad suggestions. Anything between these things are all possible. She doesn't strike me as stupid. Amy kind of strikes me as a little bit stupid. But a good husband and a good loving husband. So I feel like it's likely Alyssa suffered along with Anis whether or not she had anything to do with his bad decisions She probably because she loved him. What do you guys think about that? Any, did you see any sort of insight as to how she might have played off these things politically? Um, any, any sort of clues as to how she might have viewed a lot of these issues? Or is it just too hidden? McCall, we'll start with you this time. I, I, don't, I don't think we know. Um, given her, the decision that she, that she tries to make later on with Jaharis and Alisane, like, I, I, I don't think she's politically uh, uncanny. That's, no. I don't think I think she knows what she's doing in politics, but I also think that she was young at the time. She had a whole bunch of children, and I it seems like she had a very positive and affirming relationship with Amy's. So I wouldn't necessarily expect for like all of the details of politics to be, you know, front of mind for her. Um, she also does seem to like have a an a, like a somewhat pleasing nature. So you know, when when you're like that, it's who do you please? Like, do you please, like, the religious maniacs with the army or your husband or his mom <laughs> or, you know, or his father's wife who's his aunt? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> like, yeah, it's I, it's hard to tell. I would like to be like, oh, yeah, no, she saw through it, but I, I don't think we have quite enough information. Yeah. What do you think, Eliana? Yeah, I don't think we... I have quite enough information about this. The person who gets highlighted in terms of their decisions around it are Reyna and not Alyssa, because I guess we can only, I don't know, have one at a time for this moment. So I I honestly don't know if I can have an opinion really on what Alyssa would have done at this point. Now, as far as the incest issue, this is really interesting too, because Alyssa, as you, as McCall, as you said, she didn't want... Jaharis and Alessandra marry, not because of the incest, because she thought it was gross, but because of the faith and the, the people, you know, the religious, the religious reaction to it all. So she kind of wanted to go with the flow in that, or she's like, she didn't really want to push that envelope too much. Uh, uh, what do you think about that, uh, McCall? You have some notes here on what she, guessing as to how she viewed the whole incest issue and how that played into the politics of it. Yeah, it's interesting, right? Because she is, you know, she is an outsider. Like she, like, yes, they're their marriage was counted as one between cousins, but they're, you know, for, for Targaryens, that's pretty far away. Um, <laughs> so I, I don't know. I wonder if she had any second thoughts. It, it might just have been like, it was so expedient with, we don't have to talk about who, who has the right of succession, but I, I wonder if it was a possibility in her mind that she was like, Oh, maybe I'll find other non-sibling marriages for my children. Yeah. Hmm. Eliana, do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, I think that I wonder if part of Alyssa's motivation in letting the two marry, like obviously it ended up being the less ex like politically expedient move 
And of course, she knew this from her own marriage with like Amy's, and that people were like, "Yeah, that's fine." Um, but I I wonder if it was because like Alisane, she was hoping maybe that her daughter would also have um, some sort of rights to the throne. But I and that could be where Alisane eventually gets those ideas from. Mm. But I don't really know. That makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. Now, one political move that we probably can assume Alyssa had some sort of part of the decision is when Aegon is named Prince of Dragonstone, which is important because that stripped the title from Maegor, and of course Visenya was very unhappy with that. Uh, it's possible Aenys just announced this on his own, and Alyssa had no idea, but given their relationship, their closeness, it's, you know, I, I lean towards them discussing a lot of things in private before announcing them. And of course this is her son getting the castle. This is Aegon, and of course Reyna would be getting it with him. So, she would certainly have some vested interest here, uh, not just politically, but you know, keeping her side of the family more protected against, uh, well, against Magor. And then Aenys dies a few years later. We're not going to go through all the, the problems during Aenys' reign. That's not necessary. We've covered it in the past. Um, she was probably holed up during most of that. There was no red keep for her to hide in. So there, there's not, it's not likely she was anywhere near any of the front lines. But when he did die, she sang a dirge, which is kind of interesting. It's, it's a sweet thing to hear that she sang for him. She, I guess she had a good voice. She was musical. And um, I don't really have a, a connection to... I can't really think of a, a similar episode or instance of um, someone singing a dirge like that. It's probably happened. I just can't think of any examples. Does anyone else know of an example like that of someone singing for their... like? Uh, yeah. It's, it's, it's really haunting. It's a really cool image, but... Um, Eowyn's... Uh funeral song in the Lord of the Rings is the only thing that really comes to mind. Mm. That's cool. Yeah. Right on. Which is actually taken from Beowulf, which I know oh. I showed it to my professor once and he was like, oh my God, that's from Beowulf. And I was like, this got nerdier than I expected. <laughs> that's cool. Right on. That's some trivia. Okay. Um, okay. So we'll, we'll skip ahead to Magor's reign. Um, Alyssa knew what was going to happen. This is, at least she correctly predicted it. Which is that, uh, and she may have, it was maybe kind of obvious, the writing on the wall may have been there. And she also, like we said, she worked with Visenya and Magor, lived around them, had some idea of what they were about. So, not a surprise, but she went quickly to Driftmark, right, right after the funeral. Um, and, because she expected Magor and Visenya to seize the throne, and they did. And she took her children there as well. So, she didn't have... A dragon, of course, nor would she ever have a dragon. And her kids did have them, but they were tiny dragons, or hatchlings, if that, uh, or, or slightly larger, rather. So going up against Balerion, just not an option, really. Uh, and they weren't really warriors yet. They're too young. Prince Aegon was a bit of a warrior, but of course he was no match for Magor. And uh, yet she did some things. Despite all this, Alyssa still moved against Magor. I mean, she wasn't able to do a lot. But it just goes to show that even though she wasn't able to do a lot, she bravely did what she could and stood up to these much more powerful people who had giant dragons. I mean, it's easy, it's, it's hard to forget, or easy to forget, rather, that at this point, Magor and Visenya have the two big biggest dragons. They have Valerian and Vagar. Like, it's really hard to do anything against them. But Alyssa's just... Proclaim, proclaim, just outright proclaims Aegon King when Magor goes into his coma. Unfortunately, everybody's just kind of like, no, 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 let's, let's not do that. But Visenya doesn't get violent. She flies over there and persuades Alyssa to uh, come back to court and give homage to Magor. And Alyssa, I suppose, not super stubborn like a Rogar or somebody that just 
can't see the writing on the wall, she says, okay, sure. Uh, maybe I'll come back and make my move later. Is that how you guys see this? I, I say this as Alyssa saying, okay, she's kind of like doing a bail on here where she says, okay, I'm beaten. But uh, you give me a chance. I'm going to... I'm only bending the knee so I can have an opportunity to rise up again later and, and, and get you when I can. Uh, do you guys see it that way, or is there maybe a, something else going on here? I'll start with uh, Eliana this time. I think it kind of has to be that, right? Because by proclaiming Aegon King, which always he was going to be a threat, what she does is she effectively like places a crosshair on herself and her family, especially on her children, Aegon, by doing that. Um, so I think it always had to have been that long game that she was playing in that moment. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, McCall, anything to add? Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. I think it was as much politics as she could play at, at that point. And obviously the location of her children plays into things as well. But um, it's, hard, it's hard to know, you know, <laughs> like when, when you are up against someone like Visenya in close quarters and she flew there on a huge dragon, like... In one sense, she almost has nothing to lose because if Alyssa, she's like, look, I'm not really that big a threat. Look, they have these huge ass dragons. If they want to kill me, they can just do so at any time. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, and that might be, in fact, why Magor and Visenya let them live uh, because they were like, well, because Magor quite often just didn't seem to like a lot of people were scared of Magor. Like, oh, he's going to come get me. And he just didn't do it. Like Reyna was left alone and he seemed to just if someone wasn't an active threat, he seemed to kind of let it go. Um, unless he, he's a little weird that way, I guess. But we're not we're not trying to focus on Magor. So what, a piece of evidence that Alyssa was just waiting for her chance. Well, the minute Visenya dies, she she jumps on that opportunity. She grabs Jaehaerys. She grabs Alisande. She grabs their dragons and she steals Dark Sister. That's the real kicker. It's one thing to just grab her kids and their dragons. Those are her kids and their dragons. But she steals Dark Sister from Magor and that's going, uh, that's like a whole nother line to cross. So I think that's both more evidence of her bravery and more evidence of her just waiting for an opportunity. And at the time, nobody knows where they went. We do know later, uh, we learn later that they had flown to uh, Storm's End, which... Again, this gives me, this is part of why I brought up maybe Alyssa and Rogar became friends back then when they met that first time, because look where she went. She flew to Storm's End. So uh, what do you guys think about this? And also um, how hard it must have been for Alyssa to leave Viserys behind, who was then tortured to death by Tiana. That uh, can't be easy. So let's start here um, with Eliana. Yeah, I think it's interesting. Like, as you said, she takes Dark Sister, which is like a badass, like, insult onto injury kind of move. But there's a lot here that I think happens off page. Like, we know that Tyana is torturing the series in the hopes that it's going to flush out Alyssa. And of course, uh, with Alyssa, her two youngest children. But like, there's a whole decision here that I feel doesn't get explored, like, in front of us. Because... Again, she's escaping with her two youngest children, and she leaves beside her son, behind her son, who, like, in the hands of their torturers, of the murderer of, like, her other child, maybe even, like, her husband, and then somewhere else in the kingdom, elsewhere, like, she's leaving her daughter behind. So, like, Tyanna is torturing the series in the hopes that it's gonna, like get Alyssa to come back, but obviously it doesn't. And I think you really get a sense of what kind of person Alyssa is from this. Like, pragmatist is a word that I'm going to use here a lot, but 
to describe both Alyssa and her daughter Reyna, but I don't think it even begins to describe like the sort of dilemma that Alyssa is wrestling here because we talked earlier about the deaths of children, especially one's own children, and ultimately the choice that Alyssa is making here is she's sacrificing Viserys and even her daughter Reyna in the hopes of that long game for the future of like her two youngest and herself to be able to protect them and guide them later on. And I kind of see some parallels maybe like in the decision that Rob had to make or like that we see through Rob's thought process when he's talking to Catelyn about how Sansa and Arya, though they don't know about Arya not being in King's Landing at the time, aren't valuable enough for them to give up such a valuable pawn like Jamie and Alyssa has to make that choice between her children and she's not even the last Targaryen woman who's going to have to do that. So I I kind of wonder to one extent like a that paints like such a cold like hard picture of Alyssa, but it also makes me wonder to what extent this knowledge affects Reyna's ability knowing that that all happened to become close with her mother. It's, no one has the the harder choice than um who which uh which is it? Uh, the uh, spacing out on Aegon the Second's wife when blood and the learning blood and cheese incident when she's literally forced in front of herself to make a decision between two of her kids. But this is that sort of thing from a distance. This is that same kind of idea. She's like, I can save two of my kids. Probably going to cost the third one his life. But if I don't, they may all three die. So yeah, that's a horrible decision. But you're right. It's kind of it almost has to come down to pragmatics in some case because that's really all she has. Uh, Mikal, let's get your take on this as well. Yeah, to me, I, this is a lot of where I, I see the very strong Catalan parallels. Um, there's that, that whole idea of sacrificing and sacrificing and sacrificing for, you know, power and for the power of your children and your children's rights. That's something that runs very heavily through Catalan's point of view. And obviously, you know, when she when she leaves her two youngest children, she thinks that they're safe. Uh, and that it's it's hard to know almost what <laughs> what's worse, right? What is it worse yeah. leaving your son in a place that you know is very dangerous, or is it worse like leaving them in a place you think they're safe and then they get murdered? Apparently, uh, but I, I think that is uh, something that all this is really highlighting for me is like the fact that these women have to women throughout Westeros like have to make these choices that are kind of not given the the weight of like you know men's man's decision is like should i go to war and we get history books about that a woman's decision is like should i have a baby and maybe die or maybe watch it die or if i'm lucky it won't die for another couple of years you know and like it's it's you know or, or if i'm super lucky it won't kill any of my other kids <laughs> so, it's, <laughs> yeah, so it's you know it's interesting to me like just looking at it from almost like a meta perspective on on the way George writes this like this stuff is not um it's not the the surface level of the story but it's definitely there and and readable uh into it and I I find it really really I mean there's no answer right like nobody has a happy ending Raina doesn't have a happy ending Alyssa doesn't have a happy ending and even Alison doesn't have a happy ending no, that's true. He watching what is it? Ten of her kids died, and then, yeah, then Jaharis like saw eleven of them die. Yeah, yeah, one more died. Yeah, pretty bad. Um, and yeah, that's that's a really well said uh, on both y'all's uh, parts there. Um, 
and looking at it from the other way, right? You brought up Reyna, and if we look at Viserys, Viserys probably when he was being tortured to death, you wonder what he was thinking um, other than, boy, this is awful. But Reyna would have also had this perspective. She Because she, later she's going to say, um, my, why did my mother back my younger siblings and not me? And why did my mother let our brother sacrifice our brother to die? You know, so she's got this much different. You can see why we're going to get into their estrangement later, but some of the seeds are, are right here. Um, uh, Reyna didn't have, wasn't faced with the decision that Alyssa was, but she was still had to face the consequences of it. And uh, as much as her mother may have made the right decision, that doesn't mean it was part of that decision was I'm maybe destroying my relationship with my other kids by saving the, these two. Uh, so it's just, it's just awful. Yeah. There's just no, there's no good there. I mean, uh, which is also similar to Catelyn and, and freeing Jamie, right? Because at that point she knows that she's like, that she's yeah. wrecked her relationship with her son who she's devoted the past like three years of her life to keeping alive. And it's so sad. It's right. She's like, I'm. She's like, maybe I can eventually repair yeah. this relationship, but at least he'll be alive. Yeah. <laughs> and these exactly. other two are going to be dead. You know. So it's really, yeah. There's just, it's awful. It's just we mentioned tough, that George R. Martin choice. is a sadist. <laughs> <laughs> He's so creative with how he does it too. Right? <laughs> it isn't it's all in- just Magor and Tiana. It's this other like insane, harsh decisions. Yeah. There's that human heart in conflict with itself. Yeah. I was gonna say it's interesting that you brought up. Um, Balon Greyjoy earlier regarding like the Greyjoy Rebellion and him biding his time maybe because like maybe that's also what Alyssa's doing here or like you can see some parallels there too because Balon effectively is like well R.I.P. my youngest son Theon he's a Stark now everything's going into my daughter Asha and she's got it all and we're just gonna launch this rebellion like maybe he'll die as a hostage maybe not it's true that's a very good point I didn't even think of the extension of that that's really good that there's more parallels there than I realized I think I think you actually meant Balon's thinking my son Asha because I'm still not convinced he's aware that she's a girl. <laughs> my sir, my lady, sir, my lady Asha. <laughs> yeah. So we have once Magor's regime collapses, ever he's no one backs him. Uh, Rogar bravely then enters the war. <laughs> finally, uh, declares for Jaehaerys, and then Magor is gone. We don't need to go through all that process. Magor is gone soon after. And Alyssa's political moves are pretty important here, right, Eliana? You got some some great notes here, and uh, we have a good quote here that let's, let's have McCall read that. Though their ranks included seasoned commanders and puissant knights, no great lords had rallied to Prince Aegon's cause. But Queen Tiana, mistress of Whispers, wrote to warn Magor that Storm's End, the Eyrie, Winterfell, and Casterly Rock had all been in secret communication with his brother's widowed queen, Alyssa. Before declaring for the Prince of Dragonstone, they wished to be convinced he might prevail. Prince Aegon required a victory. Yeah. So we see the, she was doing a lot behind the scenes. She was behind most of all these messages, probably, right, Eliana? Yeah, I mean, she was, like, setting, sowing those seeds for those alliances, and that shows that she was a political player, even, like, off-screen. And I think it's comparable to a couple of people in the series. We see Otto Hightower trying to do this before the dance, but also another character um, named Tywin Lannister with a good quote. I want to make McCall read something. McCall, can you read this, too? <laughs> <laughs> you want me to do Tywin? Okay. Some battles are won with swords and spears. Others with quills and ravens. Yeah. Thanks for doing this for me. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I, I want to do this too. So. 
And so we get back into the fallout of Magor's regime. We see how Alyssa feels about the people that supported Magor. And we, we were earlier we were wondering how she felt about leaving Viserys. Well, she seems to be, she might be internalizing some of it, but she's clearly putting the blame elsewhere as much as possible, at least outwardly, which is good because, uh, you know, we don't need her to be too traumatized by it. Here's another quote. We, were had, we had like no quotes for a while and now we have a whole bunch. So, McCall, please continue. When my boy Viserys was tortured and slain, these men stood by silently and spoke no word of protest, she said. Why should we listen to them now? But she shows her character, right? This is interesting. In a couple of spots, she wants something, but Jaehaerys and Alysanne want something else. And she backs down because she, she knows how important it is for their decisions to be the ones that get carried through. She doesn't want them to, to have to back down, not in public. She doesn't want them to have to seem weak. And she doesn't want to undermine them. Um, so that's really, really big. Uh, Eliana, I see you've got some great takes here. So uh, fire away. Well, a lot of these great takes are inspired by things that McCall was saying uh, <laughs> earlier in some notes in this document that we have here, everyone. Um, and like, I think that what happens here, it's such a great example of what like McCall was saying about Alyssa paralleling Catelyn. Uh, both of them, of course, are widows and both of them are mothers of kings. And Alyssa bows out of this decision because she doesn't want her son to seem weakened by his mother's protests. Like how Catelyn is like, oh, I'm not going to say anything, even though I disagree with Rob, because I don't want him to seem weak being chastised by his mother in front of all of these men. So both of them show that they have this great understanding of pomp and like what it means to perform politics, that so much of politics is in fact performance. And for Catelyn, it's a, a lot of that is out of prudence. But for Alyssa, she cites it from experience of how weakness and that idea seeming weak was the downfall of her husband. Very well said. Yeah, that's right. That's right on the nose, I think. And Alyssa did, though. So she didn't want to gainsay Jaehaerys. When Jaehaerys is going all, I'm going to be the conciliator. She definitely didn't interfere. But she still, there was a bit of a compromise behind the scenes. She got uh, some heads and hands from people who did the dirty work of, with Viserys. And Shea's got our, I think it's our first piece of art for the episode here that she'll put up. Uh, Doug Wheatley again, doing his great work. And, uh, McCall, this gave you some vibes from a similar scene, didn't it? You got a little parallel here in mind. Yeah, um, the scene where, um, Roose Bolton brings back a piece of Theon's skin, uh, and <laughs> courtesy of Ramsay and Catelyn, it says that she wanted to clutch the grizzly trophy to her heart, but she made herself resist. And that just, like, brought me right back to that because it's, you know, it's very much the same thing, obviously, um... Uh, I don't know how you weigh like a bucket of heads and hands to a, a piece of skin from someone being flayed alive. I'm not sure where where morality comes out on that one, but uh, it's just very interesting that Catelyn forces herself to be reserved, whereas uh, Alyssa definitely and understandably doesn't. Yeah, doesn't. Yeah, she's like, yes, these heads and hands, I deserve these. <laughs> they deserve, they deserved this. Yeah. Uh, so let's see here. Um, all right. So we're going to, we're going to get to our first break shortly. I got a couple, let's take a couple of questions that we have here waiting. She has pulled for us. And in the second half of the episode, we're going to get to, we're going to wrap up Alyssa. We're almost done with her. And we're going to talk about Alyssa Targaryen, who is, a strong parallel for Tyrion in a lot of ways, which I think is fun. We're going to get into a little bit of Tyrion Targaryen discussion, uh, and we're going to talk about um, Reyna and a lot of parallels to Cersei. 
But first, uh, another super chat from Acre Frey. He says, if any of you ever feel down when you have a bad day, remember that you are fantastic, lovely, and are thoroughly appreciated. And this includes Ashea. Well, thank you very much, Acre Frey. We appreciate that. We're, um, it's always, you know, we, we do this all the time, but um, it is always nice to get good feedback. It's, uh, yeah, I mean, people give us, we, we, being on YouTube means you get crappy people coming at you sometimes. <laughs> That's just the nature of it. So it does, we do like to, it, it may sound, um, you may think we hear this a lot and maybe we, we don't need to hear it, but we do. We really appreciate it when you guys uh, reach out and say nice things to us like that. Uh, Marvin Martin asks, why did Aegon not get Vagar if he wanted a chance? Well, Vagar was still Visenya's for a while there and I don't know that he had access because remember what, what happened was Aegon and uh, Alyssa were, or sorry, uh, Aegon and Reyna were trapped in Casterly Rock and in Craig Hall for a while, and they weren't able to get to their dragons because they went on their. Even though Reyna wanted to take her dragon on this progress, uh, the king was like, "Nah, don't do that," and uh, that was a mistake. <laughs> we'll, we'll actually be talking about that in a little more detail later, but I don't think he had the chance to get Vagar. I think that's part of it. I think he may have wanted to, but I remember when they snuck in to get their dragons, they snuck into King's Landing, and I don't think Vagar was at King's Landing. I think Vagar was on Dragonstone. So I don't know that he had the opportunity for that. And then also super chat from Chicksola Brob. Listening tomorrow as always, LOL. Thanks to History of Westeros and your guests for what you do. Well, thank you too, Chicksola Brob. Uh, that reminds me that I skipped the early part of the episode patron shout outs. So let's go ahead and take care of that along with our other shout outs that we do halfway through the episode. Thanks to our, like I said, our Dragon Rider patrons. That would include Telenis the Talon, King of Gagasos, Rider of Telerius, the Red Dragon with scales, horns, and talons of Midnight Black, and Robert IV of House Ardeacor, Burned King of Blazewater Bay, Rider of Atroxus, a black dragon with bioluminescent spots like smoldering embers and a banded blue tail. Also, big thanks to Jeff Gnarly, History of Westeros' first sword. First snored. Whoa, whoops. Uh, he is also known as the Long Snapper. We also want to give thanks to our Blood Riders, Vorsaki, wielder of a Valyrian steel arak with a dragonbone hilt, Kohokoi, called Sunpiercer, wielder of a dragonbone bow, and Kohokavo, the Tamer, wielder of the wildfire whip Gehenna. Also, it is time to give a periodic thanks to our, uh, ooh, excuse me, our Ironborn captains, Peter Blaze of the Emerald Isle, captain of the Werewood Wanderers, to long lives, quick deaths, cold beer, and warm women, Dagron, marshal of the Axe, captain of the Red Tide, resistance is futile. Chiron Callsbane is captain of the Stone Shields. The torrent breaks upon the stone. Hema Helminth is captain of the Whispering Children. Dead men tell no secrets. Shepard is the Shepard of Essos. All men are sheep before the Shepard, and he is heir to the Whispering Children. Lady Lajara Dajo is the Iron Lily, Master Archer, Castellan of the Summer Island Keep, Arboreal Point, captain of the all-female Wailing Widows. Motto, women and children first. Cody the Crimson is Bastard of Bracken, captain of the Red Waste Exiles and recruiter of the Free Folk. Cameron, the Hammer of Hornwood, is captain of the English Lions, with the motto, Honor is the Reward of Virtue. Lord Brandon Brewer of Castle Brack Blackrune is captain of the Shadow Wolves. Our steel is cold, our vengeance colder. Black Alex Sand is the Bastard of Spears, leader of the Bermuda Vanguard. And Al Iskander of Yeti is captain of the Blazing Sabres. Do not go gently into this long night. As a reminder, you can get Fire and Blood on audiobook through audible.com. Go to historyofwesteros.com, click on the Audible link on the right sidebar there. And you can get two free downloads, even if you don't decide to subscribe to Audible uh, at the full price. You can get them for free and keep them even if you um, decide not to keep it. So you can effectively pay nothing and get two free downloads of audiobooks. Not a bad deal at all. 
Okay, I think that is the only uh, other mid-roll announcements I had, other than wanting to remind you all that next week's episode is Q&A, so prepare your questions. It doesn't have to be Fire and Blood related, though I would expect most of the questions will be. And also, I want to let, remind you all that um, we have three bonus episodes available for patrons. Uh, there is a two different chapter reviews, me covering the Feast for Crows prologue, me covering the A Dance with Dragons epilogue, and a full scripted episode on Gagasos, which we call Gagasos City of Blood Magic, which talks about a lot about some of that uh, genetic splicing stuff on both the uh, fire and ice sides, as well as a lot of fun history on a creepy, crazy city that uh, has a lot of fun parallels to the modern story. All right. Let's move back into it. Let's talk about the Regency of Alyssa real quick. Um, I thought it was super important, her, her role in the Tower of Joy, the new Tower of Joy episode. It looked like you had these just... Imagine if there had been some smart person, maybe a woman who would allow cooler heads to prevail at the quote-unquote real Tower of Joy with Ned and Arthur and them. Like, they really didn't have to kill each other. <laughs> and that's what was probably going to happen here with Jaehaerys and Alessandra and their standoff with Rogar if Alyssa wasn't like, no, all right, they beat us. They've outmaneuvered us. We have to admit defeat here. This is going to, we're not going to just attack my kids. <laughs> That's just, we, we, they've outmaneuvered us. That's it. And, but Rogar's like, nah, I don't know. I think we got to attack them. So the perfect example of just someone being way smarter than everyone else present, <laughs> basically. Uh, so this is another thing about Alyssa's character that I really appreciate. Uh, and just to jump in there, yeah, um, it's very interesting to me that this is the, maybe not the only, but the first time that we've seen uh, a woman's um, attempt at saying, like, hey, enough people have died, you don't have to kill all these other people, uh, actually work. Catelyn has that speech. Um, Elia has that speech. Uh, Elia? Uh. Uh, yeah, 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 Ilya, Ilya yeah. Um, it, it, it's 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 a it's something that George likes to go back to, and um, it so far has not worked until well, it, I guess worked way in the past, but um, that's an interesting parallel. Very true. Um, that's a really good take. Yeah, I guess Catelyn wasn't a regent, and you know, all these other characters don't have the political power of Alyssa, but that's still, they're all they were right. They, just because they didn't have the political power to to enforce that you know, to push that decision. It doesn't mean they weren't right, because I, I agree with you. They were right. <laughs> um, also interesting, with the political machinations we talked about before, um, with her sending all these letters, it's also suggested that she may have been the one who had Septon Moon murdered, which is pretty interesting. Um, Eliana, do you have thoughts on that or on the Tower of Joy uh, scene? Yeah, for the Tower of Joy scene, um, I think that we have a slight difference, right? Because here, obviously... Alyssa's right, just as Ilaria was right, and Catelyn. Yeah, we said right. Elia. It was Ilaria. Yeah, yeah. Brain fart. <laughs> it's like whatever. It's similar, similar uh, roots and names, but um, yeah. <laughs> they were right. But the thing is, Alyssa here is able to enforce a decision like that because here she's wielding a little more power than Rogar is. Like, sure, Rogar has more power, maybe physically, individually, but Alyssa is speaking with the voice of being a Valyrian and with that, a Valyrian, I mean, so Rogar, of course, has that blood too, but um, of the throne. So when she says, we're not going to kill my kids, she actually can back something like that up. Um, as for Septon Moon, I don't know. I kind of like the idea that it was Alyssa. I know that's slightly contradictory, but we see that she might be a person who's willing to 
sacrifice one for many, depending. So I think it's an interesting idea, especially because she took her kids to the free cities. Or, or there was speculation that she did, so she probably didn't. But the Valerians very well may have connections. That's true. That's a very good point. We have... Also, with her conflict with Rogar, which is pretty important, you know, and like, like, I think it's all, it's very satisfying. You know, for one thing, you want to see, everybody's kind of tired of Rogar just pushing people around and Alyssa, and then she tries, he tries to push, brush her aside. And everybody's like, no. I was specifically like, Corwin Corbray, the commander of the City Watch, just pulls his Lady Forlorn and sits it down on the table, points it right at Rogar. I just did a fist pump. I was like, yes, thankfully, the, the, Alyssa's will is being carried out here. She's so right. She was obviously right. And I was glad to see the men backing her up on it because you never know, right? Like they might just get carried away with Rogar's stubbornness because they're kind of like a lot of them are have a, have pride, maybe not as overwhelming as his level of pride, but they kind of can get swept up in this. We got to, you know, we can't back down kind of attitude that's just so common among uh, these, these highborn nobles of, of great power. So I really liked seeing him get tossed out. That was just very satisfying. How about you guys? Did you, did you enjoy that too? Seeing him just, just get so shut down? Possibly the only time I've been happy to see Lady Forlorn. <laughs> 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 Even though that is a badass name. <laughs> um, what do you think, Eliana? Yeah, I mean, like, the heavens parted and then, like, this whole marching band came out and started, like, playing and everyone was just screaming and yelling and shouting. It was amazing. (laughs) It was was brilliant. (laughs) So um, then she kind of fades away from political life once Jaehaerys ascends. She doesn't have a whole lot to do with politics that point on, which she she might have been quite sick of politics by that point. Plus, Jaehaerys and Alicent were doing such a fantastic job. It's not like she really – she probably could just say – Ooh, all right, These, my, my kids are doing great. What do I need to get involved for? If they need me, I'll, I'll be here. Uh, so she was kind of semi-retired. But then, yeah, Stephen At- uh, Atkins, Stephen Atwell brought up uh, a point about her and Moonti later, which I think is an interesting point. Like, why didn't she stop her own pregnancy, given that it was potentially a risk? Um, so, Mikal, you had a take on that. You uh, Did you want to weigh yeah. in on that question? I mean, it's, it's almost... Yeah, I'm, I'm just curious like why I I don't know if George was just you know not thinking or I mean again we're we're kind of working on like the 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 bare outline that you get on (laughs) for some reason I'm thinking of like a loom you know like when you're making a tapestry or something so it's like the first threads like we're not we don't have all the detail here um so we have to speculate a lot I think it's possible that maybe she wanted to like maybe regain his affections um, by having children for him. He didn't have children. So, um, you know, it's, it's, that was a very, I think he, Gildane slash George describes it as their, their marriage is like a haunted castle or something um, after, after this incident. So I can see her wanting to, uh, in the manner of her son, but not at all conciliate uh, and, and, you know, give him give him children i actually don't really uh, that or maybe she was just like maybe she was religiously against birth control because there's there's no other reason to meet why a 40 something year old woman in westeros would would who'd already had uh seven children would would be like yeah let's do this one more time i think maybe just she uh, maybe just her character she was like yeah, yeah i want to have another kid i'm she's brave you know she she stood up to megor she stood up to Visenya. she's like 
well, if the gods, you know, I guess a lot of people in that setting would just think that their fate is kind of fixed. Like the gods have just picked the point of my death and it doesn't really matter what they do. I don't know. It's hard. It's hard to be, I wouldn't call it a plot hole because it's a, it's a, it's a person's agency we're talking about. So as long as there's a person that can make a decision, you can't really say it's impossible. I, I definitely understand this take, but we just have to write it off to her character. Maybe it's possible George didn't think it through fully, but I think maybe it's just that she's a brave person. She's like, yeah, I'm going to do this and I want, I want to have more kids, blah, blah, blah. So, and, uh, but and, and Jocelyn's an interesting character, but this is part of her legacy, right? This is really important. She had eight children and th her descendants inherited the Iron Throne and Storm's End. Well, probably Storm's End because we don't actually have, there's a break in after Rogar's uh, descendant. We're not really sure where it goes after that. So probably their descendants. So that's pretty cool. She's the mother of stags. That's, that's why I'm calling her the mother of stags and dragons. Like her descendants got both. That's really cool. Even after Ares was overthrown, she could still say that because Robert Baratheon is as much her descendant as the Mad King. So she's just like, yep, my kids are still on the throne is, no matter is what. That, you, you would know this, Aziz. Is that where the Baratheons derive the claim from? No, it's uh, they have several claims, but that one, the most recent one from Roberts is her his grandmother, which was oh, uh, right. Rael, yeah, um, Egg's sister. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, and here are a couple of super chats. Um, then we'll close down uh, Alyssa. We have uh, from Seth Wilkins. He says, uh, Roy Dutrees, Simon Vance, or Harry Lloyd. And those are all three different people who have done reading for uh, A Song of Ice and Fire novels and uh, Fire and Blood, etc. Simon Vance does Fire and Blood. I'm very happy with Simon Vance. I think he's very solid. I think he doesn't stand out really well, but he also just is, doesn't seem to make any mistakes. He pronounces everything really well, which is a complaint for Roy Dutrees on some names. Harry Lloyd has a fantastic voice. Also, so does Ian Glenn. So, uh, he, he maybe deserves a shout out here as well. I don't know who, which one I prefer, to be honest. I, I can't pick. Do you guys, either you have a, a pick or maybe uh, another name that you would throw out there as someone who's done really good reading for the series? Uh, Nicole. Oh, nice. Yes, very true. Very true. <laughs> so, so, Random so that's house, our pick. call me. <laughs> <laughs> that's our pick. She's our pick in these parts, that's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I, well, I've been meaning to, to re-listen to, um, to Harry Lloyd's reading of, of the, those stories. Um, and I assume they're very good. I'm weirdly partial to Simon Vance. I don't know why. Mm. Maybe it's just the way he says, like, fun. <laughs> like, it's just like, oh, Gandalf. Yeah, but I also appreciate that he doesn't, like, I really dislike the way um, uh, Detrice does women's voices. Like, to a, to a woman, they all suck. So yeah. like Vance doesn't try. Yeah. That's the thing. He, exactly. That's what he. Yeah. I would way probably rather was, imagine yeah. it in my head, like translate the sound in my head, than than you know, like I you know I'm not so yeah. I I have a slight weakness for like the low baritones. They're not really in my range. So like I would rather also just like not do it and have people imagine it. So we got a question. Um, people, a couple people are wondering about the parallel lives for this episode because these character studies are so focused on parallels it's kind of like the whole thing is a sort of a parallel life study as we said with Alyssa, there isn't a great single one-to-one -one parallel but we've related her to cersei catlin quite a bit probably catlin more than anybody i think that's emerged from this probably that the strongest parallel might be catlin like a catlin with more agency um it would be perhaps a good way to put it a catlin who got to retire and uh you know have well dying in childbirth is no fun but she wasn't murdered at her son's wedding. That's definitely <laughs> better. Uh, so, 
yeah, so that's that's something. And we do have one very specific Parallel Lives we're going to do near the end because it's going to segue us into our final topic because it just lines up so well. Um, but that's coming a little later. Uh, from Acre Frey, Westeros History, not a Song of Ice and Fire related. How do you so frequently manage to get such awesome guests on the stream with you guys? I'm not really sure. <laughs> I ask nicely. Um, <laughs> well, we, um, I don't know. I think we've, we, w- w- this fandom is really good about that. We all love to mix and match discussions and fun things happen when we do that. I love to guest on other people's streams. So do both of them. We all pop up all over the place. And I think that's just the cool thing about this fandom is that we're all, with very few exceptions, we get along really well. We're able to just, hey, hey, you want to come on my show? Yeah. When? What time? You know, what are we going to talk about? It's it just kind of goes like that most of the time. It's it's very, it, it often is just like a couple of friends chatting about when they're going to hang out. You know, it, it, it's, it's very uh, easy um, and friendly and uh, simple. So um, do you guys have anything to say about that? Like your experience with being on other shows or just the fandom in general as this goes? I, I don't want to speak for everybody. Okay, well, I'll speak for everybody in this case then. <laughs> if, if no one has anything else to say, that's cool. All right, so let's move on. Yeah, we've got uh, we got a lot left to cover. Um, I think we'll probably have to cut a little of the rain of stuff, um, but we, some of it we already covered anyway. So, anyway, one of the really cool things about uh, the last little thing we'll say about Alyssa is how she set the tone for queenly power in Westeros. Like Visenya and Rhaenys were really no one ever was like them because they had dragons. They started off as queens. They were married to the king. It was just a totally different scenario. Everyone after them, no one had that kind of power that they had. Um, Arguably, some of the kings didn't even have the kind of power they had. So, and there's an interesting thing that comes up here in general that's that's uniquely female, um, which is that there are no widow or kings. There's no such thing in Westeros. It's possible to have happened, but it hasn't. Um, that a queen, a ruling queen, which we haven't hardly had at all, uh, dies leaving a, a, a husband that was the king consort. That has not happened. But we have lots of times where the king dies and there's a queen left over. And that also happens all over Westeros with lords and ladies and things like that. So I wanted to have a brief chat about, get, get takes from you all on on just that, how unique that is. Well, yeah, I mean, obviously I guess that happens because what Jaharis kind of blocks that from happening each time the possibility comes up and we see it also happen amongst like Reyna and it just happens because they decided hey we're gonna follow this very like specific form of primogeniture instead and the only reason why we get close to that during the dance is because they're like yeah let's just the series is like let's just blow everything up because uh my brother also kind of sucks so <laughs> yeah all right uh mccall what do you think uh no major thoughts but i will say that it uh as a sort of related thing that i'm just gonna rant about for a second it so pisses me off that um rhaenyra is not counted in the line of targaryen rulers like she aegon if we're if we're saying that aegon was the king then she was also <coughs> the queen like Oh yeah, and I think from a historical standpoint, it makes sense too because her son became king next, and he could mm-hmm. just be like, "Yeah, put my mom in the history books, damn it." Yeah. So yeah, I, I agree. I think she should be listed because of the way it was written. Because her son was in charge, it makes sense that he would put her in there. So yeah. Anyway, I realized after reading Fire and Blood that I could list all the Targaryen kings, <laughs> which kind of horrified me. But I was also like, um, 
And I, I was like, and then Rhaenyra. Like, <laughs> yeah, you get there. to throw that in there. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, so Alyssa's legacy is really interesting because there's not only was she the first for so many things, and she set the tone for kind of how queens had to rule, especially because even though she didn't have a dragon, and there are Targaryen queens that came after her that did have dragons, not many of them did. Like a lot of Targaryen queens, either never rode their dragon or didn't use it in war, like Rhaenyra, or were just traumatized before the need for their dragon mattered, like uh, Jahera, I suppose, who her Dreamfire just sat there because she was traumatized from the blood and cheese incident. So a lot of these queens, even the ones who had dragons, didn't really use them threateningly or uh, kind of the way that our next character was able to, even though she had less power than Alyssa. So, Reyna. <laughs> we have a little song here for Reyna that uh, Ashea grabbed a, a little uh, bit for us here. I did. <laughs> should, I, should I play it? I don't think I should. You don't think you should play it? Okay. Well, we'll, we'll we can post, paste it in the name. paste it in the chat there. We'll put it. We'll post it in the links. I'm so just curious what it was. Be aware that we have a song for Reyna Targaryen here. <laughs> uh, okay, so Eliana, um, start us off here because you uh, wrote something funny. <laughs> I mean, kind of. It was it was obviously a joint project, a collaboration, if you will. <laughs> um, so, Reyna Targaryen, born in 23 AC. From the moment she was born, she started to make it Reyna. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Damn right. So, this is a good example of somebody whose life... And circumstances really changed their their arc as a child because the way she started off is very different than the way she ended up and what what passed in between. She seemed kind of kind of a fairly happy kid at first, uh, especially after getting her dragon. Which you know back then the Targaryens were getting their dragons a little later in life, and in fact she's the one who started to change that. She was a big fan of her siblings, but she was not happy later in life, nor was she a big fan of her siblings later in life. So this is a couple of the main things that changed. For example, she really, really loved Alisanne when she was born. The girl said, (laughs) (laughs) the girl delighted so in the babe that one might think she was the mother herself. Yeah, and supposedly Reyna is the one who put Alisanne's egg in the cradle, which became Silverwing, and the same for Jaehaerys and Vermithor. And of course... She's credited with being the one to start that trend in general. And that's just really neat. We don't know why she did that. It's not necessarily rooted in any sort of something that she saw written. We don't get the sense that she was bookish. She's She, she loved kids and animals growing up, not uh, she wasn't bookish. So she may have just did it. You know, she's kind of a cool thing to do. She just thought it would be fun. And it actually it caught on and it may have actually mattered. Then... She became a huge fan of flying. Once she started flying regularly, it would be like her, the great joy of her life. It's one of the few things she seemed to really enjoy doing. And there's a lot of great stories of her just flying all over Westeros, popping up in strange places and et cetera. She um, rode with Aegon and Viserys and their parents to the coronation in 37, which was um, a really long trip that included stops at a lot of different castles. And for Reyna, that was a mixed bag. Here's another quote. Princess Reyna was 14 years of age, a beautiful young girl who stole the heart of every knight who saw her. Not that it did them any good. And Ashea is going to put up on screen some art from Naomi Makes Art. It's a picture of Reyna, or a drawing of Reyna. 
And but Raina did not like this attention, this this stealing the hearts of knights that saw her. Uh, she wasn't into that. Uh, Oris Baratheon's maester writes from Storm's End, McCall. The princess did not seem to want to be there, nor did she approve of anything she saw or heard. She scarce seemed to eat, would not hunt or would not hunt or hawk, and when pressed to sing, for she is said to have had a lovely voice, she refused rudely and returned to her chambers. The princess had been most loath to be parted from her dragon Dreamfire, and her latest favourite, Melanie Piper, a red-haired maiden from the Riverlands. It was only when her mother Alyssa sent for Lady Melanie to join them on the progress that Raina finally put aside her sullenness to join the celebrations. So here's, that's, by the way, another little nice move by Alyssa. Alyssa kind of fixes things there by reading her kid properly and, and bringing her friend over. Um, yet another little feather in her cap there. So we get the sense, we, we hear that she's really close to Aegon. She was, she was into her brother. They were really close. They were tight. They were friendly. Um, maybe the love was pretty genuine between them. And she, her marriage to Andrew Farman later was clearly a sham. Although there's a little hint that at first there was maybe a little something, a little affection, maybe not desire, but it, it certainly was okay when it started. Um, but regardless, it was a sham marriage. And so it's possible that the only man she ever really loved was Aegon, was her brother. And from then on, she was mostly into women, uh, which is sort of where the Cersei vibes start to creep in because the only man Cersei's ever really liked is Jamie. She didn't, she, she was into Robert, but she didn't ever, she was, that was a, that was kind of like a lust thing. She realized later she wasn't really into Robert. And when she got to know him and Lancel was just a copy of Jamie, it's quite, it's, it's, pointed out pretty clearly that she's into Lancel because he reminds her of Jamie. Uh, and again, he's painted as a poor copy in that light even. So the early on in life, she's not very much like Cersei, but like I said, this is when it starts to creep in. Uh, then there's another progress. Uh, Raina and Aegon go on this one and it's a disaster because this is during, this is when the unrest is happening under Aenys's reign. And uh, this is, they get stuff thrown at them. The faithful are just like jeering at them. And this is when Raina starts to show her steel. She starts to be a little less, this is the first example of her being unshy. And it's a pattern that starts to come out in her life. And it's a little bit of a couple of Cersei vibes where she starts to get a little threatening. She'll threaten people and, and uh, just kind of come back at them. Um, Eliana, you've got some good notes here. Go ahead. Yeah, I want to start off with a quote that I, I'm just going to make McCall read it because this is fun okay. for me. <laughs> <laughs> Yet that did not stop Princess Raina from riding up to them to say, You are fearless when facing a girl on a horse, I see. The next time I come, I will be on a dragon. Throw dirt on me then, I pray you. Thank you, McCall. <laughs> Yeah, so I wanted to call this quote out uh, because, as you said, this is a pattern for Reyna, but part of the reason they're in this situation at all is because Reyna actually suggests to her father, she's like, hey, what if I uh, brought my dragon with me during this entire thing? And Aenys, foolishly, as uh, Gildane even points out himself, doesn't heed Reyna's suggestion to bring Dreamfire because he says that it risks making his son, Aegon, look quote-unquote unmanly and I just think that it's so 
it's just like a running thing throughout this whole story, this idea that for the sake of manliness, the regime was weakened. It creates a PR disaster because like you get the rulers who are fucking like pelted with things. And that means that Reyna thus has less means to protect her family when Magor finally does try and like make a play for the throne and then they're under like siege and left at Craig Hall, all for the sake of manliness. Like Aaron Greyjoy is like, yeah, uh, we're gonna hold a king's boot because Asha's a woman. She can't have the sea stone chair and takes a gamble and thus what? Now we have your honest king like <laughs> yeah well that's real better yeah this was like a bad play all right we should have just let reyna bring her dragon and i wonder if like situations such as these uh reyna ends up receiving criticism from her siblings especially jaharis because she will make threats with about her dragon as she does here um and showing that power against her enemies like when the fair isle turns on her but i wonder to what extent like that happens because reyna feels that need to make these explicit shows and threats of power because she grew up in a completely different political climate where she was in the midst of it um, and having that power was necessary whereas Jaharis and Alicene uh, were to an extent shielded from that. That's a great, yeah, that's a great take. I mean, from the moment Reyna is born, she's a pawn. She's, a, she's immediately in the midst of the succession and her whole life, it goes the same way, not just for her, but for her kids. Her kids, Aria and Rayella, are constantly being used as pawns, constantly thrown into politics without any agency. And then Raina herself is, is constantly getting the short end of politics, right? Like she's she's supposed to be an heir and she was supposed to be the queen and her husband is killed. And then everybody just for, kind of pushes her off to the side. And then there's all these things you'll see through as we go through this, guys who, who aren't clear on this. It's just, there's so much for her to be bitter about. Like there's a lot of things that Raina does that you kind of like, whoa, she kind of sucks. But Every time you look back and it's like, boy, she had a crappy life and you can kind of understand why she's so bitter and how so many things went bad. But at the same time, a lot of times she made things a little worse on herself by the way she carried out a few of these things. So, but we'll go through that. Um, uh, let's get McCall's take on this, this early stuff. I, I, I mean, I really think that, I mean, I totally agree with you guys. I think that, you know, she, she was almost like thrown into the pool as a, as a baby and she learned to swim uh, it just is unfortunate. Like she never, you know, she, she was kind of promised like, oh, if you swim, you'll get to the end of the pool and you'll be allowed to climb out and be queen or be safe or be loved or whatever. And she never gets to the end of the pool. Like it's, it's never there. She's like swimming and swimming and swimming. And her entire life is basically more effort. And I think that explains a lot of where she goes in the end. Um, I mean, even like, just what you were saying about, like, her and her daughters being pawns. Like, her first move as a mom is to be like, we're not involving our daughters in this. Yeah. Know? Like, we're not doing that. And, <laughs> you know, it doesn't, it, she doesn't succeed in that either because of stupid Tayana. And, you know, just every every move she tries to make is, I think, a lot, a lot not due to her own, you know, um, miscalculation. But she's just checked at every turn. And you put a, a great, you pulled a great quote here that shows, that perfectly shows this, the point you just made. Why don't you go read that for us? Yeah, she says, um, I, would, I would gladly give up my, my own life to make you king. She's talking to Aegon. But I will not put our girls at risk. And this is like right after they're born. And yeah. she's just like, no. And they disagree on this. And it's, yeah. She's, that's really, yeah, that she puts motherhood above politics, which is, 
rare uh, mm-hmm. for people born into this life. But uh, but it's understandable for her because she was born into politics immediately and it sucked right away for her. <laughs> so she from the very earliest age, it was terrible. And it comes with trauma from her her only possibly the only man she ever loved being killed by her own uncle and then having to later marry that uncle, which we haven't gotten to yet. But it's just so bad. Um, and just so many things to make her bitter. And, and uh, so using following McCall's um, analogy of swimming in a pool, it's almost like Raina was like, wait a minute. Why am I in this pool at all? I don't have to be in this pool. She eventually figured out she can just leave the pool and and climb out and just go do her own thing. And that is what she did eventually. But that was after more and more trauma, more and more awful things happened. So here's how she faced it initially, though. Uh, She this is also sort of Cersei like the way she faced this trauma and the way these awful things are happening to her. She's like, look. I got to do what I got to do, though. I got to be pragmatic. Yeah, I don't have time to just be traumatized here. And there's another great quote. Before McCall reads it, I want to point out that Raina and Alyssa, especially Raina, are amazingly quotable. Some She's one of the best pers- people to quote in the entire book. Maybe the best. She has so many great one-liners. And we didn't quote it in this episode, but the line about... Balerion when when Franklin Farman says, oh, we'll we'll send Balerion away. And he's like, she's like, you're going to good luck shooing off the black dread, buddy. I wish I, I should have pulled that quote because it's so good. I, I should have gotten the exact wording, but it's <laughs> I just I think rain is so quotable. Anyway, enough of me gushing over Raina's quotes uh, and let's have McCall actually read one. I do not have time for tears, whereupon fearing her uncle's wrath, she gathered up her daughters, Aria and Rayella, and fled farther first to Lannisport, and then across the sea to Fair Isle, where the new Lord Mark Farman, whose father and elder brother had both perished in the battle fighting for Prince Aegon, gave her sanctuary and swore no harm would come to her beneath his roof. For the best part of the year, the people of Fair Isle watched the east in dread, fearing the sight of Balerion's dark wings, but ne- but Magor never came. Yeah, I was something we were talking about earlier how he just didn't he didn't see her as a threat anymore, so he just kind of ignored her. Um, so upbringing wise, this is kind of interesting. Um, we're going to skip over the, some of the stuff, relationship stuff with like Alyssa and that because we kind of we covered a lot of that during the Sun Chaser episode. But I want to remind people of how she was. Uh, people were wanting her. They, the Lannisters kind of wanted to get her eggs and or marry her and to just do you know kind of get their own maybe get their own dragon, stuff like that. And that's part of why she had to kind of move on and get her own, get herself to Dragonstone. But, but well before that, you know, she was reinserted into the succession crisis. She didn't want to, her family didn't want her to marry Magor, but once they lost the power to prevent that decision, Visenya and Magor circled back and said, hey, this same succession crisis is still hanging over. They were still, Magor's people were, were, were telling him, hey, if Jaehaerys and Alysanne are out there, well, Raina's their elder, and if you marry her, then that really screws their claim quite quite well. Now, if we compare upbringing here, something kind of interesting, uh, fatherhood, who their fathers were, is super interesting. Um, Raina's father is Aenys, which is a much different father than Cersei's father, who is Tywin. But Cersei's grandfather, Titos, Titos has a lot in common with Aenys, and that is where the parallel hits pretty strongly because so much of Tywin's personality is a reaction to Titos, and so this all kind of trickles down. You guys have any takes on that whole Cersei, Reyna, Tywin, Titos, um, what do we call that, a circle, a triangle, a family triangle? Uh, Eliana, why don't you go first? Yeah, it's interesting because I don't quite see Reyna acting like Tywin, right? 
Um, and it seems like the one who ends up being influenced by Aenys's example the most are, of course, Jaehaerys because he's inheriting that realm. And as we said earlier, like Alyssa, who you know does the same thing as Tywin in trying to fight a war using quills and ravens. So I don't know. I just thought it was interesting that Aenys and Tytos are both seen as these these soft men, and therefore their families suffer for it. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, McCall, what do you think? I think there's an interesting parallel to be made with um, Viserys a uh, little down the road, um, King Viserys the second, um, because he, you know, insisted that uh, he basically what I'm saying is there's some amount of paternal cruelty and pr- pragmatism that I think is more acceptable in a king than it, it is in a lord, because Tywin's basically Tywin was acting for his own pride and for family pride. Uh, Reyna here and Viserys later are acting because of the realm. Um, And obviously there's debatable elements within each decision, but I think that um, Tywin is a lot like Rogar in that, like it's, it's a personal affront and he can't stand a personal affront that, that is unconscionable to him. That's why he goes after Tyrion, you know, like that's why he burns the Riverlands, not because he cares about Tyrion, it's because of his own pride. So, um, TLDR, Tywin bad. (laughs) (laughs) So Eliana has a lot of takes here in our document. She uh, agrees with me on some of the parallels to Cersei, but also wants to point out a lot of things that are different from Cersei. And I think that's, that's always a really good thing to do because when we talk about these parallel lives, we're not trying to say these characters are identical. It would be boring if they were, and it would be, it wouldn't be subtle either. So it's, Good to point out the differences, too, because that's what makes these characters interesting. You have characters that face similar things and handle them differently, or characters that just have some things in common, but that doesn't mean they're the same person, right? Parallel doesn't mean perfect parallel. It just means there are parallels. So, Eliana, you've got some great notes here, um, differences between Cersei and Reyna that are just interesting uh, things to, to consider in general. Yeah, first I want to give a hat tip to what Nicole was saying about that distinction between um the stakes for a lord and a king when it comes to those actions and being influenced by weak rulers. Uh, and yeah, as you were saying, you know, parallels don't necessarily mean they're the same. And I think that speaks to George's really well-woven character work that there are those connections, but they are still ultimately their own people. And, you know, we're going to see, of course, that Reyna was never really close to her children. And I think that it wouldn't be inaccurate to call her quite a negligent mother. But I think that it's kind of muddied, and I think that's why I don't see her as exactly like Cersei. Because we get a lot of indication in the books that Cersei, she loves Jaime and her children in the books as extensions of herself, but not necessarily as their own people. You see that in how she uh, tries to mold Tommen kind of into Joffrey, who's like a... Who's basically Magor in many ways, but anyways. And even at an early age, Cersei shows a violent nature because she decides to murder her, like, BFF Malara Heatherspoon. Yeah. And by BFF, I mean for, like, the rest of that day. Um, <laughs> just because Malara Heatherspoon had a thing for her brother. And by contrast, we actually see that Reyna very much loved her siblings and not in the same way uh, <laughs> that I guess Jane. Cersei did Jamie. Well, I mean, maybe she did. She married her brother, but whatever. But she actually had a connection and fondness for other people. Like she had friends like Melanie and and Alyssa and like she had her like girl gang or whatever. Um, Whereas for Cersei, especially because of her Valencar prophecy, she sees her children 
yes, again, as extensions of herself, but also very much as like a countdown towards her death. With each child that dies, that's her getting closer to her death. Whereas for Reyna, I think you see the opposite here multiple times. The moment that they're born, because they're born into this wartime, she pleads with her husband, like, we need to find some sort of safe passage for our girls, and I will put my life at risk. I will die for them to live. That's very opposite from how Cersei acts towards her children. And she follows through on all of these, like, the best that she can. She hides her children, and then she knows that her uncle's summons is going to come. It's been looming over her head since the moment she was born. And having anticipated it, she lets herself be bait so that her children can escape. And, like, obviously, like, this plan fails because, I don't know, you, uh, Magor has a trump card because he has, like, witchcraft through Tyanna, and her children are found, but because of her children's safety, Reyna submits to this fate. And I think there's an interesting way that this scene where she weds Magor is described. They say that her voice is, like, icy or it's cold, uh, which is interesting because a lot of the imagery that we get of Cersei in that first book in A Game of Thrones describes her very much as cold. They're like, oh, she was, like, snow. And I think that a lot of that is very gendered language about an ice queen, which is often used to refer to women who seem emotionally distant. And it's a great contrast to how we see Cersei in later books uh, through her own POVs and interiority and, of course, how her family sees her, where she's very much described like wildfire. So I think that's a bit of like those parallels and contrasts between Reyna and Cersei. Well said. Yeah, you, you got some fist pumps from McCall during that too. <laughs> she was giving you some thumbs up and all that. Yeah. Um, another example of uh, Reyna's attitude towards her kids that's different than Cersei's is that she says that she tried to kill Magor on their wedding night. <laughs> she had a dagger hidden under her pillow or something like that, which is the kind of thing which she w would know that would get her killed. If she killed Magor there, she would die herself. But she would have been doing that for her kids, presumably, because that's they were at risk. Uh, you know, any other heirs, any other Targaryen heirs were at risk if Magor ever has his own kid, which think of everybody else as just like, if Magor has a son, we're all screwed. And he just never did. So, because, Yeah. <laughs> Uh, that was another, yet another piece of anxiety that all these Targaryen women and other heirs had to deal with uh, during Magor's time. I, I mean, I totally agree with Eliana, and I think we can't underestimate the the degree to which Cersei's passion for anyone and anything is, uh, and like an autosexual type of thing. Um, but I also think that Cersei's, like Cersei, we see her arc change very much going back to that prophecy, right? But it's not like it swerves. It just kind of accelerates, you know. <laughs> Whereas I think Reyna and her marriage to Rago, uh, to Magor, like, is a is a complete derailing of her story. I think I think it's notable the changes in her personality, in her clinginess, in her you know meanness. I think they're they're again given the text, it's we have to guess at some, but I think that it's pretty clear that she was extremely traumatized by her experience with Magor, and understandably so. And I think that's when she starts to become more like Cersei. It's not the mm -hmm. early life stuff is less so. It's the, it's the after the trauma and the bitterness and the losing. Like, consider how she treats Area and Elissa later. She's she's no longer making about uh, wanting Area to have a great life. She's more like, no, I want you to stay here with me because I'm miserable, and if you leave, I'll be miserable. Even though you're miserable here. <laughs> and that was what, that's how she handled Alyssa and Aurea. And so that's when she starts to become more, I guess, selfish, maybe, maybe isn't quite the right word, but it's, it's, it's she's less magnanimous towards other people, even her own kids, which is too bad. Though that seems to melt off a little later 
because we do see, at least in the end, she's visiting Rayella every year. And that's the one person in her family, her, her daughter, is the one person she still has contact with once she's fully out of politics. Yeah, so, yeah. I, I think that's just so important to think about because, like, I mean, from her perspective, I imagine it's n- almost not even like, yes, obviously there's a certain amount of like, hey, I'm a Targaryen. I'm the queen in the West. I get to, you know, keep people here if I want to. Um, I'm your mother. You'll do as I say. But I think it's also like if they go away, then she can't keep them safe. Right. And and that's such a huge thing that changes, you know, with Andrew Farman's Andrew Farman's stupid, stupid, mean badness. Um, uh, like I, I, I see Raina as like, if Cersei was sympathetic, really, <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. you know, yeah, I, Raina's in that moment exploring, I think what would be called like the shadow or something of Jungian archetypes of the mother. Like there's a the part that's nurturing, which she sees that she's capable of. And then there's the part that's like smothering. So that's, yeah, that's a really good take as well. Um, so let me, let me, let me rattle off a few lines from the outline here that just kind of encapsulate i think really well some of reina's trauma and bitterness the things that she has there she obviously all the death is huge um she loses her brother husband her best friend melanie piper and she's separated from her children remember that during this siege she, where she's trapped um and the realm is in unrest her friends start to kind of melt away because they're all of all the danger and the difficulty in supporting her. But the one who sticks with her, besides her husband, is Melanie Piper. And then Melanie and Aegon are both killed by Magor in this next battle. And then over time, she starts to bring her, she gets, to, gets her friends back and acquires them all and kind of is able to bring them to her and live with them for a while. And then she's kicked out again of, of living in the West after moving back there. And... Uh, here, let me get some takes from you all uh, before I go with some of the more details here. But here's where uh, there's, some other, there's some other parallels to Cersei. I think part of the reason she married Andrew Farman is to avoid ha- being forced into a political marriage later. Just like, hey, look, if I just marry myself off, they can't use me as a pawn. My hand is taken. They cannot force me to marry someone else, which m- totally fits with her not telling anybody. Right. She didn't tell Jaehaerys. She didn't tell Alessandra. She didn't tell her own mother. She didn't tell Alyssa. Alyssa was upset about that. Um, but in this light, it kind of makes sense. She's like, because if they, she told them, they might try to stop her. And then she can't accomplish her goal of, of being unmarriageable, being able to control her own destiny. Even though it's a sham marriage, uh, she just didn't want anyone else to control it. So to me, that shades of Cersei being like, look, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm not a broodmare, dad. You're not going to marry me to the Red Viper or to one of these other dudes. Like, Balon Greyjoy, are you kidding me? You know, like, it's the same. It's, to me, she was worried about that kind of conversation coming up between her and her brother or something like that later. Um, so, uh, McCall, please weigh in on that as well as this, this, this episode, this part of Raina's life in general. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. I think that that was a very proactive... Um, you know, I think we all kind of, we call Andrew Farman like her beard uh, so that she can, you know, go go be with her ladies. But I, I think that might be a little bit reductive because it does um, kind of ignore the fact that she was making her own political future in that, in that move. Um, and very effectively in marrying like apparently the biggest like schmuck in the entire... <laughs> Seven Kingdoms. Everybody was like, literally, that's that's he's the guy at the the end of the list. Um, and and I think you know, I think it's it's. I like to think of it as as you know, she just didn't tell Alyssa because she 
was afraid that her plans would get derailed. Um, that's, that's maybe more of a, you know, and then that causes those, that, that ripple effect, um, of, of sadness and hurt feelings. Um, I had one other thing that I was thinking about with that. Um, just, just, oh, just that like her, you know, when she does get to do those political moves, when she does get to exercise a little bit of power, it's always very contained, you know, it's always maybe the dagger in her own hand, it's always marrying Andrew Farman, where nobody can stop her. It's, you know, it's it's really interesting the way she interacts with power, especially as somebody who was born to be a queen. It's just a really fascinating arc, and, and you know, similar to Cersei in that Cersei thinks that of herself, <laughs> but it's not actually true. <laughs> yeah, and of course, the other, that parallel also runs deeper with it's a fake relationship, kind mm -hmm. of. I mean, Cersei and Robert don't love each other. They don't have sex, um, although they, in both cases with Reyna and Andrew, there may have been some at first. Certainly I think Cersei they consummated the marriage. I don't think she would have... Uh, yeah. Would have left that up. Oh, good point. Yeah, because otherwise it could be annulled. And if you're right, she wants to seal that deal and, and be, be cut her out of the, any political machinations. Yeah, you're right. That's a great point. Um, and Cersei mocks Robert and Random mocks Andrew. There's just a lot of that. So it's, uh, that seems kind of familiar. Um, Eliana, you have a lot of fantastic notes on this section here. So uh, take it away. Yeah. And again, uh, McCall always has brilliant thoughts. <laughs> I'm just going to say those were great. Um, yeah, I think there's just, like, this was inspired by seeing, like, McCall's nose. I think there's, like, a discussion here to be had about uh, the expectations that people had of women in Westerosi society. Because, like, Reyna did her duty, in a way, uh, when it came to securing the Targaryen regime in a way that wasn't going to blow up the rest of Westeros under Magar, right? Like... Any children that she had at this point, they wouldn't be heirs to the throne. And, like, in fact, if anyone wanted to be that greedy or make a power play, someone could do something so sinister as to use any children that Reyna had as political pawns against Reyna's siblings. So I think there's a little bit of, like, a pragmatism behind her not wanting to remarry, as well as, of course, trying to secure her own freedom. But I think there's also something kind of underlying and, like, sinister behind that idea that Reyna must be married off in order to consummate that marriage and have children because we get a lot of indication in the books that Reyna is a lesbian and to like force her into a marriage with a man where she has to subject herself to having sex with someone she doesn't want to and of course this is, this is the fate of many straight women in Westeros anyway but like this idea that women must be bedded and they must have children until one of them kills the mother it's like a cruel system and it's exemplified through uh, both Alyssa's through um who, Dela? Uh, uh, the one of one of Alisane's children, the one that's married off to the Aarons, and 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 this idea of dead mothers, of course, and if um and how it resonates throughout the rest of A Song of Ice and Fire. I'm going to point everyone to like an essay by Joanna Lannister on Tumblr called The Dead Mothers Club and how this just keeps popping up in A Song of Ice and Fire and uh, questioning like to what extent does it add to the story and what is it actually doing. Hmm. Well said. Really good. Um, yeah, I, I would even um, add to that, like, there's a point later on where uh, I think after Arya dies and Reyna's just like, I don't know what to do with my life. And uh, Alisane, you know, suggests with good intentions, like, oh, you know, we can find you another lord to, to marry. And Reyna freaks out yeah. and, like, absolutely <laughs> loses her shit at Alisane. 
And I think it's, it's very much that, that twist, that like two part problem where she's a lesbian and she doesn't want to marry a guy anyway. But then it's also like the extra insult of like, this is like, this is what, this is how I become valuable. This is how my life get become like gains meaning by being married to somebody because I have a penis. Like that's that. Then then I'm like useful and whatever. And she even well, yeah. Allison even says you might still have more children. And it's just like, oh, you're usually good at reading people, but you did not read this one right. Right, now. and that's <laughs> part of her. That's a great point because it's part of Alice. Part of Raina's bitterness is like, how are you so good at reading everybody except me? Mm. <laughs> you yeah. know, because everyone sits here and says Alisanne is so amazing, but it's like, well, that amazingness just misses her. Yeah. Alisanne's amazingness is projected at like ninety nine point nine percent of the world, but that one point one percent is Raina's in that point one percent that just doesn't have doesn't the sun doesn't shine on her. I wonder. I wonder if it's almost because she views her as like a second mother, like pa- yeah. I think it's part of it. And Rain is older than Alisanne is like, you're not the, you shouldn't be arranging my, it's like one thing that y'all got the throne, but you're also got to be like arranging my marriages as if you're my elder. Come on. Like, that's just too much. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder if it's like, so something that's so interesting about the way that these sections of Fire and Blood are written is it feels like a family drama. They just happen to have dragons and also be royals and have a shit ton of armies in power. But like, Reyna's the rebellious eldest sibling Right. And she's the one out there forging the path and all the kids afterwards have like her example to be like, don't be like Reyna. Don't be like that one. And and she's the one who's just like has to fuck up and bear that. And as as uh, McCall said, have that responsibility of being like a second mother. But all that's on her. But the thing is, like, she's she plays the role of the rebel older sister, but she hasn't actually rebelled. You know, like her her biggest rebellions are like, oh, you know, OK, so she was kind of annoying she was sullen to, to like courtiers as a kid and she like liked to hang around with all these girls and wasn't really interested in getting married but she married Aegon she had two of his children she snuck into King's Landing under corn buckets or whatever to, yeah. to you know steal her own dragon back and like she, she did that's that's part of what's so sad like she did so much that she thought she was supposed to and yet she still winds up as this like misfit rebel who's just you know kind of can't please anyone yeah that's a really good take as well so we talked we talked about the queen of the east stuff also a bit during the area and sun chaser uh coverage so we'll skip a little bit ahead and talk about uh, a couple other quick cersei uh parallels here um one is eh, this one might be this one might be just kind of random or a stretch i just think it's kind of funny that cersei's lover is Taina, and Taina rhymes with Reina, and it's spelled similarly. But that might just be coincidence. That might be a stretch. I just had to point that out. And then we have, in the East, we have her, a little bit of a vibe, a Cersei-Sansa vibe. Sansa's learning, learns a lot of about politics from Cersei. Uh, and um, you have Erea and Reina being kind of similar, like this this mentoring in politics by someone who has just been through the worst. So her mentor, her advice is kind of good but it's also filtered through this extremely cynical worldview but isn't wrong either i mean cersei's experience is is not common but it's also not uncommon for someone in her position it's just that very few people are in her position because you know there's not that many queens so there's this uh, relationship with her mother and more things to get bitter about like Araya dies she searches for her and can't find her um actually elian you had a note on that Oh yeah, I just uh, thought that it was interesting that, um, you know, it's worth noting that Reyna 
does very much search for her daughter. She goes on this like whole quest to try and find Urea again. And it feels like a self-punishment. Reyna feels very self-hating in this moment. But I mean, like, Cersei's not gonna do that for Sansa. She's like, Sansa dumb. Sansa killed my son. <laughs> half true, half true. <laughs> true that. There's a little bit of a, a parallel to Andrew's death and Robert's death. Not not a whole lot, but just the fact that they were already kind of there are already parallels between them and the way their death changed their the way their husband's deaths affected the rest of their lives uh, because of politics and other things. But uh, uh, Raina was able to avoid most of that. She was able to kind of get out of politics and, and stay out of people's way for the rest of her life, which is interesting to consider with in light of Cersei. Um, so that's kind of what I would get into a little bit as well. But the one last little thing that just before Raina left politics, she goes to see her mother and gets there too late. Right after Alyssa dies in childbirth, which is just, geez, how much more does she have to just suffer? So apparently at least one more time. Um, so Ileana, you had a good take here as well. So uh, go ahead. Fuck, at least one more time. Christ. <laughs> <laughs> so bad. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I don't know. I just think that there are a lot of things that are cliches in our culture, but that's because we see some truth in them. And I just feel like that relationship between Reyna and Alyssa feels like an exploration of a couple of these platitudes. Like one of them is too little, too late, Reyna. <laughs> yeah. But also like you never know what you have until it's gone. And it's just so, so sad. And then also that Reyna's story, like just to throw in one more, is a question of like, is it really true that it's better to have like loved and lost and never loved at all? Because Reyna's story makes you think like, maybe not. <laughs> It's, a, it's bad. Yeah. And that tells you a lot that it's an example of that concept. <laughs> it just goes to show how sad it is. It's like, she's an example of it's better to have not loved at all. Like, oh, damn. And and of course, Cersei and Reyna both lose their mother to childbirth. Cersei much, much younger. Cersei, like, that's another big difference between them is that Alyssa was a big part of Reyna's life, whereas Joanna was not a big part of Cersei's life only until she was about six or seven, I guess it was. Um... And I think um, if we kind of wrap up Reyna, some of her legacy. Oh, just, and... just to say one thing about that. Oh, yeah, go ahead. An, an interesting contrast to me that, you know, Cersei, uh, Reyna doesn't actually seem to resent Jocelyn or uh, Boromund at all. Like, she That's doesn't true. seem to be like, okay, I want to be your sister. But she's she instructs uh, Rogar very, like, firmly, like, okay, you're going to take care of them and... Also, fuck you. Um, <laughs> yeah, don't she, have any more. <laughs> but she like puts the blame on him, whereas Cersei um, like worships the ground that Tywin walks on, you know, Good and point. like mm. and blames Tyrion instead. So it's an mm. interesting kind of like mm. contrast there. That's a good point. That's, That's great. Point. I yeah. love that. Yeah, and of course, Reyna had a dragon. Like, if Cersei... Cersei has all this, like, amp, like ah, I wish I could... wish I had more power. I wish I could do stuff. Oh, God. I'm just imagining Cersei with a dragon. <laughs> uh, Shea pulled a great piece of art here that is a wonderful fit for this. We have um, Reyna. Uh, she's clutching her dead friend here. Just think of Cersei and Joffrey at the Purple Wedding and imagine how similar that, that feels um, while you're weeping. <laughs> it's a very sad moment. Yeah, really good, uh, really good artwork inspired from uh, from this book. Okay, so this last little bit, let's talk about her legacy. She she lost everyone basically in her life except Rayella, and it's kind of interesting that she settled down. Well, and Dreamfire, she got to keep her dragon, which is pretty important. Uh, living in Harrenhal was kind of an interesting way to to end her life because that's really close to where her life turned so bad. That's where Meg, that's where Megor killed Aegon and and Melanie, and uh, it was kind of the beginning of this long 
run of, of life being bad for her. Uh, but it's kind of neat that she befriended this Megor Towers character who lived, uh, who kind of another forgotten kind of guy screwed over by things that he had very little to do with. So let's 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 talk about a few things that are kind of firsts for her. She like her mother, she had a lot of claim to being the first to do some things. Uh, she was the first girl born in the royal dynasty since it was formed, or the first Targaryen princess to have twins, which is you know, of vaguely relevant to the whole twin issue is kind of vaguely parallel to Cersei, Jamie, and uh, Aegon and Rhaena weren't twins, but they were, you know, brother, sister and close in life. And then she had their own twins. So a little bit of a little bit of parallel there. She was also the first Targaryen to remarry since Megor didn't really remarry so much as just add more wives to the list. And then she was the first to re-remarry <laughs> because she got married again, again. So that's, of course, to Andro, because Andro was, you know, her technically her third husband, just Megor, you know, wasn't by choice. So we can kind of not, we can sort of not count that one. Another little, very small uh, Jamie-Cersei parallel there is how Jamie and Cersei would, would fool people by dressing up as each other, which t- kind of is vaguely like uh, Rayella and Area being swapped. Oh, we're having cat thunder. That's a cat rubbing his cheek on the screen. Hey, buddy, get away from there. So here's a here's an interesting take. We had pointed out that she she was the person that started the egg and cradle uh, thing, and then we had that question earlier from Marvin Martin: Why didn't she put eggs in the cradles of her kids? I don't know. That's a maybe she did, and we just didn't hear about it. And maybe those eggs just didn't hatch because they weren't at Dragonstone. Remember, those two kids were born at Castle Rock. But hi, I don't have an answer to that. So McCall, weigh in on that, but also weigh in on this this great point you had about witches. Yeah, I'm not I'm not sure about the whole cradle thing, but um. I, although if Cersei could do that, she would. Um, but it's very interesting to me that that more than once throughout her life, even when like people still kind of like her, um, pe- people are starting to call um, Reyna a witch. And then you know when she retires to the, the, the old age home at Harrenhal, um, <laughs> she like people are like, oh, it's a witch who lives there. And like part of that is probably the atmosphere of Harrenhal. But it's interesting to me that. Um, it's so, like, it's almost random. Like, it's kind of baseless, you know? Like, what, what, is, what, what is happening that she, you know, she magically killed Magor from far away? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. You know? So it's, it's all very tenuous. So I kind of, I'm almost wondering, Cersei maybe seems to be on a slight upswing in terms of her victimization um, at this point, but I wonder if, if people might start to, accuse her of that because that's not really something we've seen in Westeros so much like Miri Mazdor is like a witch but that's true it's a topic we're going to we're going to handle later in the fire blood coverage because we have Alice Rivers called a witch Mm -hmm. and some other characters that's going to come up that's pretty important but that's near near the end of the book so we're holding on to that till later but it does kind of relate to this a little bit because it's it's Taron Hall and it's possible that Dreamfire laid an egg or some eggs because Dreamfire laid a bunch of eggs at Hall, and maybe that's where Alice's River's supposed dragon comes from. Anyway, we're not going to get into that now, but there is a connection to that here. I do just love that um, Reyna was probably the only person in history to actually live happily at Hall. <laughs> that's a good point. She was the only one who had the right disposition for it. She's like, oh, this is nothing. Yep. I've been through worse. Like, <laughs> They're not my ghosts. Who what yeah. do I care? <laughs> yeah, so uh, so Cersei's fate is probably not like this because the Valonqar seems to just be overwhelmingly more likely than her living out her days alone. I don't I don't think that's Cersei's fate. However, 
there is the idea that where I think there is a strong possibility for parallel is the idea that Cersei could be a new queen in the West. If she escapes King's Landing ahead of young Griff slash Aegon VI, she would go to Casterly Rock. And that would make her sort of a queen in the West, even though she wouldn't necessarily have a lot of power because she would be a person that's maybe too difficult to attack because Casterly Rock is so hard to get at. But she wouldn't necessarily be a huge threat either because she wouldn't necessarily be due to, uh, to extend her power. And then there's the possibility of some sort of connection to Euron, teaming up with Euron, who knows, all that. We, we don't need to get into that. But I just wanted to throw that out there as a possibility because the idea that Cersei, if she gets to Casterly Rock, she's not just going to die easily. And that would still allow the, the Valonqar prophecy to be fulfilled if Jamie goes to Casterly Rock and maybe kills her there somehow. But, on, but of course, this would remove the possibility of her being killed by wildfire or Jamie killing her to stop her from letting off a wildfire explosion at King's Landing, something like that. So it's not a slam dunk theory by any means, but I, I definitely want to throw it out there as something that's possible. Do either y'all have a take on, on that theory or anything like it, or should we move on? Sounds like we should move on. Okay. Well, we have a super chat from Marvin Martin. What was Raina's husband's problem? <laughs> that's a very, uh, that's an open question. I think, he had a lot of problems. He just he wasn't good at anything, and he didn't necessarily realize it. He was he was I don't know. <laughs> he was just he had a bad life. Um, he was mocked his whole life. So it's not like there isn't a little. It's not like we can't feel a little bit of sympathy for him. But he burned all he he ruined any little bit of sympathy he might have earned when he handled it the way he did by murdering people. That's a, a horrible way to handle people mocking you. I mean, come on. So. There's not much good to say about him. There's really almost nothing good to say about him, and we don't really need to linger on him. But I don't know. I don't, I don't have anything else to say. I don't have any kind of great, insightful reason for him being the way he was. McCall, do you have anything about Andrew that's, that's uh, beyond the <laughs> he sucked? <laughs> um, you know, it's just interesting to me that, that he didn't always seem to internalize the whole, like, you're a useless, emasculated, you know, waste of space um like he did genuinely seem to be kind of like a simple dude who was fairly happy with his meager lot in life um early on and it's hard to say like i mean you could maybe put some blame on reina's you know coterie of of friends and followers like it's it's not cool to be nice to be super mean to somebody you know just because like they are the laughing stock of the castle or whatever um, but I, I think, you know, some of that comes down to like toxic masculinity a little bit, like internalizing that idea that, oh yeah, just because people are laughing at me because I'm, I haven't accomplished this or whatever. Like you're still married to the, basically the queen, man, mm -hmm. like, you know, deal with it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. So, um, last thing here, we're going to, we're going to talk about Alyssa, Targaryen really quickly because we don't have much time left. Well, we already passed our normal time, but Alyssa Targaryen is kind of a short topic. We'll, we'll just focus on her parallels to Tyrion and uh, take maybe five or ten minutes on that and then we'll call it a night. So I, I wanted to introduce this topic with one of my straightforward parallel lives uh, takes, which is because there's a lot of interesting kind of straightforward surface level parallels that remind us of this character, or remind us of Tyrion. So, of course, this isn't trivia because I've already told you who the answer is. But consider that they both have mismatched eyes, uh, the heterochromia. And one of her eyes is green, which there's only one other Targaryen with a green eye. 
And it's also a green eye. <laughs> it's Shiera Z-Star has a green eye. And no other Targaryens that we know of have green eyes. They're either purple or blue or, yeah, like not something else. But we couldn't find any examples of other green-eyed Targaryens. So that's interesting, of course, because green is, because green is so rarely used, it's really associated with Lannisters. So that is a connection to Tyrion. Now, Alyssa also got a sword wound to the face that gave her permanent nose damage. Hello, Tyrion. They both have unusual hair color for their for their house. Tyrion's is white blonde, which Tommen has white blonde hair too, but Tyrion has streaks of black in his white blonde, which is weird and uh, not weird in a bad way, but unusual. Uh, it probably looks kind of cool, actually. And Alyssa, likewise, has like dirty blonde hair, which is not common for the Targaryens. There's a few other that have that, but obviously that's normally the silver gold thing. They both shamelessly talk about and joke about sex. Alyssa is hilarious with some of her some of her lines. We'll get to some of those a little bit in a, in a minute. We got a couple of quotes. There's they both have this shadow of death and childbirth. Alyssa died in childbirth herself around the same age Joanna died birthing Tyrion. And both of them, Alyssa and Tyrion, were very close to their older brother. In different ways, of course. In, in Alyssa's case, she married her older brother and was really in love with him. And they were the she's the one that he talked. She talked about having sex with him a lot, whereas Tyrion talks about having sex with uh, sex workers and <laughs> just in general. So it's a bit different. And of course, he, he never had sex with Jamie. <laughs> <laughs> that we know of. <laughs> that we know of. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> boy, this is this is some interesting fan fiction here, isn't it? <laughs> so, Alyssa is uh, born in, in born in sixty AC, named after Alyssa Valerian that we just talked about, who had died in in fifty four AC um, after giving birth to Jocelyn. She marries Balon. And uh, Alisande was determined that these two would marry. And this is even, she even followed in Balon's footsteps as a warrior. Uh, she likes to train and she liked to, she was a bit of a tomboy, I guess. And uh, so let's talk about some of the parallels. Um, the, the hair color thing kind of reminds us of Daron the Drunkard. He's the other Targaryen that had that, and he's a real, a real sad figure. Um, <laughs> McCall, you wrote a, a quote about, wrote a little, little tidbit about uh, Daron here. Yeah, I, I I feel so bad for him. Like he's one of those people who like does shitty things just because like he can't deal. Yeah. And like also but also like feels bad about it and I I find him a very compelling and uh, like he's haunted by these by these premonitions he gets. Like you could tell it's crazy. So Yeah. I like and, Daron a lot. And and Tyrion and Daron have a lot of parallels. Dra- yeah. Being with dragons, drinking a lot, you know, Both being definitely you know, Targaryens. Being an yeah. <laughs> <laughs> being an embarrassment to their father, all that. But that's uh, so, but Eliana has also some takes here. And this this is, let me set the table a little more. She and I had a little talk about this, is how it relates to Tyrion Targaryen. And that that's fueling some of this conversation here. But just as a whole, this I don't think this, this like all the Tyrion Targaryen debate, I'll, I'll restate where I'm at on it. I don't think it's necess- an automatic truth. I'm not, I'm not a person who says Tyrion is definitely a Targaryen. I'm one of those people that for a very long time has thought it was possible, that the, the evidence exists. It isn't, it isn't a sure thing by any means. The evidence can all be interpreted as Tyrion being associated with dragons. It isn't necessarily that Tyrion is a Targaryen. It's just that his, his arc is associated with dragons. However... George just keeps adding more clues. He just keeps giving. What is the point of making this Targaryen so much like Tyrion? I don't. I don't see it. What's why? You know, just to have fun with it. Maybe. Maybe. 
But there are other reasons. Eliana, you go ahead now. Tell us uh, what you think. You have a lot. You have a lot to say about this, and I think a lot of it's really excellent. Yeah, I think I, I would, I, I guess describe myself now as like a Tyrion Targaryen agnostic, right? And like, um, for a long time, I actually was very against it. I was like, I don't really like the Tyrion Targaryen theory, but upon reread, as you were saying, there's just a lot there. And then I think what what caused me to start rethinking it was when the world of ice and fire came out because um am i mistaken that elio and linda said that there was something in the world of ice and fire that they thought would be somewhat controversial amongst fans in regards to a theory yeah yeah i think that was part of it yeah and then of course the timing them being very specific with the dates of when joanna was and wasn't at king's landing mostly specific with it yeah yeah like like it ended up ruling out very much i think uh Jamie and Cersei. Jamie and Cersei, because Nearly, there's like yeah. a three-year gap. But then, like, there's a little bit of ambiguity between the anniversary tourney, where Joanna and Ares would have been in the same place, and then the birth of Tyrion, like, in 273 AC. And I was like, what the hell? What is this? So um, that made me start, like, really thinking about it um, a little more seriously. And I don't know, one of the things that I disliked most about the Tyrion Targaryen theory was that it seemed like it would undercut a lot of the character work uh, between Tyrion and obviously his relationship with his father, Tywin. Um, but the more that I thought about it, the more that it doesn't have to be that. Because, like, I completely understand the criticism that people say. They're like, oh, shit, if, like, Tyrion's also a Targaryen, that's another secret Targaryen. And then it just feels like a lot less special when you have like reveal after reveal of secret Targaryen secret Targaryen right um one after another and that it cheapens it but I think that there's another way to go about it right there's there's more than one way to write this sort of idea and um with art it's either you do one thing right sometimes and to be like its own singular unique thing in contrast or you go all in and you do it so much to absurdity that it becomes its own different thing entirely right and i think fire and blood lays a lot of the foundation for that especially with the introduction and emphasis on dragon seeds especially during the dance and if it becomes less of it becomes less of Targaryens are this one special thing. It becomes suddenly like, yo, everyone's a fucking Targaryen. That farmer's a Targaryen. That fisherman's a Targaryen. Like that, that random ass woman there on the beach, she's a Targaryen too. Like, what does it mean to be a Targaryen? And I think that it becomes, it starts to explore a thing that I think A Song of Ice and Fire is very much trying to talk about. And it works on, it works for multiple characters. Like, you aren't your family, all right? Thank fucking God, none of us are our parents or in our family. Like, <laughs> we might be very much influenced and inspired, like, by the way that they brought us up, but it means that Tyrion gets to define who he is. It means that Daenerys doesn't have to be what it means to be Targaryen. She has to figure out, like, what does it actually mean to be Daenerys, okay? And you become judged not just for your family and that legacy that they left behind or the expectations that come with that name. You become judged for who you are as a person and your actions. And then Tyrion obviously has done a lot of bad actions in the book and he'll have to wrestle with that. And of course, I think Tyrion being a secret Targaryen or bastard makes him a really interesting foil for other characters in the series. Like, for example, we see how Ramsay 
uh, acts as a foil for John when it comes to bastardy. We see that in Theon and John, both as outsiders in Winterfell, but also um, part of that inner circle to an extent. And I think that it would be a really great exploration of comparing different characters and contrasting John and Tyrion's reactions if both of their parentages come out. Like, John obviously would be confused because Rhaegar, you know, to, to bring it back to Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2, <laughs> Rhaegar was his father, but he wasn't his daddy, all right? Yeah. Ned Stark was John's daddy. And, like, for Tyrion, it could, like, for John, while it might be heart-wrenching to find that out, for Tyrion, it could be seen as a relief because he was raised... Like, John was raised as a bastard and loved by the man that he thought was his father, whereas Tyrion was raised as trueborn and utterly hated. So I think there's a lot of great room for character work there. That's a good point. It's, and, and it would something I never thought about in this light is the whole idea of John and Tyrion going through that together and with their with their little budding friendship that, that started at the beginning of the series. What a thing for them to become circle back to bond over and like all dwarves are bastard in their father's eyes. You know, like, well, actually <laughs> you're not a bastard and I am. Like all along it was the opposite. And of course, then it creates Jamie and Sir Tyrion killing each other's fathers and all this other crazy stuff. So yeah, it it, it works either way. <laughs> McCall, let's let let's get a take from you and we'll then we'll try to wrap this up uh i mean i'm not really sure how to follow that up um (laughs) that was was good (laughs) that was epic um but no i mean i'm i'm very much on the Tyrion targaryen train um i think that it's a a really interesting way to think of it as a um like the these literal seeds being planted through the story of you know the targaryens are are like we have we have some reason to believe that they were not hot shit in Valyria, um, <laughs> and that nobody really missed them when they left. Um, so I, I like the idea that we might kind of eventually be going back to that because it it is kind of a full circle of you know we we meet them and it's like oh my gosh the Targaryens are like this great ancient family and then it's like oh it was three hundred years and like they almost tripped into it. Um, and I really like the idea of that coming around and playing into Tyrion's story. I am a little bit at a loss for how people are going to find out about this um, or like how Tyrion is going to find out about this. Cause I don't, I don't think Bran is like watching that channel in the weirwood net, um, <laughs> you know, but I mean, who knows? Like anything's possible. It could be that he like gets on Viserion or whatever. And the the brown Ben Plum scene may have foreshadowed him yeah. for him rather than for John. You know that's that's yeah, one exactly. thing, one theory um, that's out there. And and if Tyrion is a dragon rider, I just firmly don't believe that Danny is going to have a dragon rider slash husband who is or a head of the dragon who is not a Targaryen and related to her because that's mm. what they do. So that is what they um, do. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so yeah, brother and cousin and or nephew. Sorry. Right on. Okay. Um, yeah, so I think that this is the point of Alyssa Targaryen. She's her own character, but this is fa- it's just another just reminder of this theory that just won't go away. The longer, it's one of these theories that every time there's new material, it just gets a little stronger. Dance of the Dragons made it a little stronger because with Bar- Barristan sitting there thinking about uh, Ares and Joanna, it's like, why is he thinking about these things? And then, there, then the World of Ice and Fire throwing dates and times, and now Fire and Blood giving this parallel character whether or not George is going to give us this answer or make Tyrion a Targaryen, he absolutely wants at least those of us who pay really close attention to think about it. There's that that much is 100% because it's either it's it's not an accident. It's either a red herring or it's the truth. It is it is not just boy, this George didn't realize that he was making this parallel. 
So, all right. So uh, let's. Let, in, I want to give a couple of funny Alyssa quotes that because they're just so hilarious and they remind us of Tyrion. And then um, we'll close out the episode with uh, letting our wonderful guests tell everybody where to find them so they can get more great takes like this uh, elsewhere. Okay. Um, <laughs> at one point, it's said about her that she's as body a wench as any barmaid in King's Landing. Uh, she herself says, Red Maidens, the two of us. But now we've both been mounted in reference to her uh, riding Melis the Red Queen. She was the first rider of Melis the Red Queen, which is interesting because Melis was later ridden by Rhaenys, the queen who never was. And uh, that's, well, um, that all got very interesting with the Dance of the Dragons and all. Her, her children are Viserys and Daemon the Rogue Prince, who, you know, uh, went up, um, you know, had Rhaenys on their team for a while there. <laughs> so, uh, and Eliana, you have this great take on uh, Balon and Alyssa's wedding night. It's not just their wedding night. It's just so weird to me <laughs> because I'm just like, why? Okay, like, I don't think I'm ever going to get over the idea that, like, Gildane, first of all, why does Gildane know this? Like, whose other, like, accounts, right, for writing these down that <laughs> she was able to find these, like, first, these first account sources? First I, I would sources? say Gildane definitely has an eye for this kind of detail. <laughs> oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, like, what else is there to do at the Citadel, I guess? There's yeah. no internet, so this is, I guess. Let's listen to the know. prince and princess bang. Yeah, that's. <laughs> yeah, Bran might not be tuned into like Aries and Joanna's channel, but it seems like Gildane's tuned into Alyssa and Balon's. <laughs> so yeah, like I just I'm never gonna get over the idea that like it's it's talked about how they had sex. It was so loud, everyone in the castle could hear it, and I'm like, dude, that's your brother. And also like when you say everyone in the castle can hear, like your parents can hear too. Like you don't want your parents hearing you having sex, and like. Then I think about it, I'm like, maybe it's not weird for them, like, not weird for their family to hear you having sex, because I guess you're also literally having sex with your family, and this is normal, but I'm just, like, <laughs> never gonna let this go. What a rabbit hole. <laughs> They're humping like rabbits, too. Oh, well, that works out pretty well. Okay, so... <laughs> I think uh, I think that wraps it up. We, we this is the longest stream we've had, Fire and Blood stream we've had. So that's cool. Character studies can kind of go that way. There's so many little things to talk about, so many things to relate it to because it's the human experience. And there's anytime we talk about something that happens to a person, we all have our own experiences, our own takes to draw off and connect it to. And um, it's it's different than theorizing. Although we certainly threw out a few theories here. We talked about a major theory, Tyrion Targaryen. So thanks very much to everybody who came. Thank you very much to Ashea for running production. Thanks for all the chatters. Thanks to the super chats and the great questions. Uh, remember that we're having a Q&A next week, so you all can bring um, any other questions that didn't get answered here. You can uh, bring them back up next time. You can send them to us in advance if you want us to consider them uh, ahead of time. That does help. Um, if you send us questions several days in advance of the stream, well, we get to think about it more. Uh, so thanks to uh, big thanks to our guests. Um, Eliana, thanks for coming. Please tell everyone where to find you on the interwebs and what you have in the works and what you just put out and all that. Yeah. So, um, as we said before, you can find me on Maester Monthly, which is a podcast that uh, is based around the A Song of Ice and Fire subreddit, around cool conversations that people are having. Um, kind of like a newsletter, but not, right? I mean, the Reddit subreddit's your own newsletter, whatever. And then also the Girls Gone Canon podcast. Uh, right now, you know, as I said, we are doing a POV reread, and we have just started the Theon chapters a few weeks ago. We actually had a Shea, though, to help us wrap up 
the Sansa chapter, speaking of people guesting on people's things. Oh yeah. Yeah. So you can find me there and on Twitter as Arithmetric. Good luck. <laughs> right on. Everybody, yeah, definitely uh, check out uh, those things. Subscribe to Girls Gone Canon and Maester Monthly. And Mikal, please do the same. Tell everybody where to find you and what you're working on and all that good stuff. Yeah, so you can find me, uh, my writing at hypable.com if you like Marvel, if you like Star Wars, if you like uh, this Game of Thrones show, um, <laughs> <laughs> fantasy literature, uh, you can find my writing there. And um, you can also find me podcasting a couple different places, actually. Um, Marvel, I podcast at Level 7 Access. Um, they're a, a kind of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., but also general Marvel uh, Cinematic Universe stuff. I um, have the nichest podcast in the world, which is called Nice Jewish Fangirls, and um, that is uh, exactly what it sounds like. It's it's nice Jewish fangirls who are <laughs> nerds, um, and that's all we do. Um, and then also more A Song of Ice and Fire and general nerd topics at The Vassals of Kingsgrave, and um, where it's a lot of incredible people who I'm like regularly honored to be podcasting with, and they're just amazing. Um, and yeah, uh, Twitter is ink as rain and, uh, that's, that's pretty much it. I'm so tired right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I have to go to the bathroom. So bad. <laughs> <laughs> we, we probably all do. Yeah. So, uh, with that in mind, thank you very much, McCall. Thank you very much, Ileana. I'm going to skip the Patreon credits this time because everybody needs to run to the bathroom and because this was such a long episode, but thank you very much to all our patrons who make the show possible. Um, your shout outs will come next time. And real quick, Marvin Martin, Super Chat, wanted to know, said, speaking of sex, what's the point of the betting? Well, I think it's to net, let everyone know there was a consummation. Consummation is such an important part of the wedding, of the marriage, to, to kind of seal the deal, so to speak. So having a ton of witnesses really makes sure that no one could possibly spin it otherwise. Um, McCall, and here I was just thinking that. It, the bed would be really uncomfortable without any bed. <laughs> yeah, it's also because patriarchy, but there's, <laughs> there's also, I mean, there's that, but I think Marvin probably knew that part already. Bedding. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Bedding. Maybe everyone was really into voyeurism and stuff back then. <laughs> hey, yeah, okay, yeah, right on that. There's something to be said for that, <laughs> probably. <laughs> they certainly have fun with it, except for the most of the brides and many of the husbands. <laughs> <laughs> it's, just, it's, just, it's not for them. It's for everybody else. Okay. Thank you very much, everybody. Thanks to uh, thanks to everybody who came. Thanks to, for all the great questions. And Valar Aridas will be back next week with a Q&A and lots more fun stuff. 